Hi, everyone. Welcome to Artifact number 20. Me and Joel Parrish are going to do a show in photography. So we have a, a bunch of people to get through. This means that if you are on the audio podcast listening to this, and if you're watching this, you could also listen to the audio podcast. We, we're on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcast, most likely we've got you covered. Um, but if you are listening on audio, you might actually want to switch immediately to the YouTube version of this. You could find this on the Automachination YouTube channel because we're gonna show you a lot of photographs, right? We have a lot of people to get through. We're mm -hmm. going through an entire history of photography about 150 years or so, maybe a little more. Um, so Joel has a bunch of photography books that he's gonna uh, put up to the screen. We're also gonna do some screen shares uh of things that we we don't have right but it, it's going to be a lot of stuff it's going to be a lot of fun hopefully um uh, we could make these several hours go by very quickly um and i'm gonna yeah. do i'm gonna let joel just do a lot of the control in this episode right because he's also besides being a businessman and poet he's also a photographer right his website poeticimport.com you could find his his poems you could find his photographs you could find uh, uh poems after photos and vice versa so um he's gonna he's gonna give us a lot of a uh, technical knowledge and, and background that i don't have right mm -hmm. so uh right. sometimes one of us feels like a little slightly underprepared for an episode um and in this case uh, i feel i am right since uh, the person uh, across from me has a lot more knowledge about the topic so um anyway why don't uh we we talk about uh the history how you want to frame things going forward and then you know maybe get closer and closer into the present day and just kind of like uh discuss abstract questions right what makes a photograph good um how do our values reflect in some of the values of the artists that we're going to see um maybe maybe you could take away from take it away from here joe Sure. Thanks, Alex, for the intro. And yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm excited about this episode very much. So this is one we've talked about doing for quite some time. And I think we had a lot of other stuff we wanted to do too. We've got plenty of other things in the future that we'll want to do, but it felt like a good time to go ahead and, and do a photography episode. I think one of the main things that viewers and listeners will get out of this today is uh, some nice parallax with some other art forms too. And uh, hopefully Alex and I drawing on some other knowledge and experience really across the board to uh, to shed some additional light on some of these photographers and their work uh, and just the the art of photography in general before we really dive in on some specific comments and then on to specific photographers and everything else i do want to give a couple brief caveats uh, that, that i hope everyone will be understanding of i think they will be so first would be to say that um, Alex introduced me as a, a photographer. I do consider myself a photographer, but let's say uh, an advanced amateur, maybe. I, I'm not a professional photographer. I don't get paid to do photographic work in a commercial sense, or uh, I haven't sold any fine art prints, at least to this point. You know, these are uh, that in particular would be something of interest to me down the road. But um, there's this isn't someone speaking from a, a long uh, storied career or something in uh, professional photography so please just keep that in mind um, another thing would be we're going to talk about a lot of photographers today but by definition and by just the 
the constraints of time, Alex and I cannot possibly talk about everyone's favorite photographer. So I'm sure that there will be some names left off today that maybe viewers or listeners would, uh, maybe they love those photographers and their work. Maybe they'd want to hear us talk about them, but that won't happen today. It's not to say we don't value them and their work or maybe on another time would, um, would want to talk about it. It's just that we can only get through so much. Uh, we've only got so much stamina, but also uh, one of my hopes today is to hopefully introduce folks to some photographers they've never heard of before that I think are still wonderful. And there are going to be some big names that we trot out here and, and talk about their work, just some seminal figures, but hopefully some lesser known um, artists as well that, that I think have uh, just a lot to to say to us. And uh, the last thing that I'll say is um, I do have a good amount of technical knowledge on photography. Uh, personally, all my work is done on film. So uh, some of what I'm going to be sharing with you, and, and maybe there's even on my part, a bit of a bias because Alex sort of let me control this list of photographers in a lot of ways. Uh, there may be a bit of a bias toward um Toward some film photographers, toward older photographers, which would mean by definition, most of them were working on film rather than digital at that time or other alternative processes, which I can talk about a bit too. Uh, but I certainly don't know everything. And photography by now, after to Alex's earlier comment, 150 plus years is an expansive enough art form that um, it is an overarching medium, but there are so many different media uh, that photographers have used to communicate. So I, I can't possibly know everything about those processes. I've worked with some of them, but there are plenty more I haven't worked with probably than that I have. But nonetheless, just from a lot of reading and, and accumulating knowledge and information over time, hopefully I can give people some interesting insights to what I understand to be some of the working methods uh, of these photographers and how they achieved some of what they achieved. So, um, that's all I've got in, in terms of caveats. Uh, hopefully, viewers and, and listeners will understand all that. But with that out of the way, do we want to just start in on on some historical context? I'm also not a photo historian, by the way. I don't have a, like a degree in uh, art history. Right. Right. I, so, I, I think that's enough you know, humble. I think that's enough yeah. humbleness for one. So enough humbleness and humility for one episode. Okay, good, good. Um, so yeah, just keep in mind a, a number of the uh, points we're going to make here about the history of photography are, are pulled from sources anybody can find, right? You know, Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, some other books and stuff. Um, but hopefully we can just frame it up well enough yeah. with how it's evolved that people get uh, a good sense of it. So uh, is there anything you want to say to to kick in on that, or do you want me to? Well, well, well yeah, I, I guess the two things are related. Like, first of all, one thing I appreciate about about the list, right, that you cur curated to uh, discuss is um, uh, th these these are not all you know well known photographers, and even some of the names that might be like very big in the photography world, um, uh, uh, you know, lots of people just just haven't heard of right um mm -hmm. simply because they haven't you know not all of this has penetrated pop culture right richard uh avidon uh penetrated pop culture right more people know him mm -hmm. um so that kind of thing you know vivian uh uh mayor recently seems to have penetrated pop culture simply because you know uh we had a movie about her people just started talking about her like online right which just mm -hmm. tends to have these uh you know ramifications for culture these days right things that tend to start online and in the way that her reputation started online um but uh when you go back in time one thing that surprised me about this list 
uh, we're going to start kind of like a little bit somewhat at the beginning here. Um, some of the earliest photographers, uh, I expected them to be almost purely, you know, mechanical and mechanistic in their approach in the sense that they're doing like work to get paid for maybe. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but instead, like, like some of them are, are truly like great photographers, you know, like as artists, right. Not just in terms of technical skill, there's lots of stuff that we're going to be looking at that I think is just, you know, just really, really good photography by any standard. Right. So, um, and, and one thing that that tells me is, uh, art, you know, art tends to have a kind of like self-regulating function over time, right. Where, um, a little by little kind of like what, it, what what implicitly art demands of itself and of others it tends to come to the fore right you could discuss those things you could pull them out and with photography something that started perhaps just purely as a means of um you know let's just call it just like replication uh people really understood that hey there's there's things that you could do right to turn something that is mere replication right? Into something a lot more, right? Just like we did with painting, right? Just like, mm -hmm. you know, with painting, it's not merely about being uh, uh, hyper-realistic, right? In, in a depiction, uh, there's there's underlying realities that art gets at. And, and a lot of, you know, even the early photographers seem to have really understood that, right? And this is reflected in their photographs. Right. Yeah. And, and we'll talk uh, in a few minutes about some of the tension that came up, especially in the early days between painters and photographers and painting feeling in some ways usurped by photography. Um, and, and we'll go, go on with that, but yeah, exactly. I think that there are some, there were some seminal figures in the early days who pretty quickly latched onto photography, not just as a means to make a living, a, a number of, of them did, but as a way to, to express ideas and, mm -hmm. and to communicate artistically. And so um, that then launched really into the 20th century, which is a huge boon for photography, obviously, and how expansive it became. So um, I think what, what we'll do is, is maybe first just give a little bit of, of the development of photography and some of its processes and then we can start to talk about individual photographers too. And I will probably move approximately chronologically with the photographers that we're going to talk about. But uh, Alex and I haven't drawn it up to be 100% chronological. Whoever we want to talk about, we'll, we'll pinball around and talk about as, uh, as it seems relevant. But um, what I would say is that when you look at, at the history of photography, humans had for a long time an, an interest, of course, in image making and that's why we had the, the the visual arts from many many centuries and millennia ago and they also started to make a note of the fact that hey there are certain surfaces that when light hits them for short times long times different seasons different angles of light whatever uh, it changes that surface something interesting happens so what's going on there and it, it launched some curiosity and over time, um, you know, we had a move towards something like the, the camera obscura, which was maybe the first realization of what an aperture could do, right? If you let light in through a really narrow space and then let it expand again in a dark area, it's going to give you an image and it, it projects that uh, across from itself. And I think, correct me if, if you have any knowledge on this and I'd be wrong, but um, for the most part, things like a camera obscura were sort of uh, novelties 
they were kind of something that people could come see and be entertained by. And it was a, an, an ooh and ah sort of thing, uh, whether that's at you know, scientific fairs or maybe just uh, general you know, fairs for fun that, that people could go to. But the camera obscura was really fascinating uh, to people because the, especially when, when that works and basically light coming in through a really small aperture, uh, I don't understand all the science of this, but the image is, is inverted right mm -hmm. so it's it's yeah. flipped around and so when you see it on the wall opposite you if you were to like walk into a tent as a mm -hmm. a patron of this uh, that would be another especially interesting thing so it, uh, I, I even would say in some ways you know photography has um walked in lockstep with science right and it's kind of had to in order to have enough developments in the chemistry and and the um the ways that light works and and these understandings of of all of that to get to where we are today. So um, it, it was maybe kind of cool and almost helped popularize some scientific curiosity among people. I'm, I'm speculating on that too, but I feel pretty confident that would have been the case. So, yeah. um, you know, you, you have this, this movement over time to where people are getting more and more interested by what's going on there. Um, and eventually once we start getting into the, the, the mid 1800s, there starts to be this desire to say, what if I could freeze that image? What if I could make that permanent? And what would that do? If, if we could have image capture that's literally a, a moment in time, how does that change the way that the world works and, and how we communicate with each other? So really the, the first permanent process that came around was the daguerreotype from Louis Daguerre, who developed that in the mid 1800s. And of course, um, a very, very involved process, right? I mean, I, anyone can just Google that and, and kind of see what's all involved. But um, you're talking about materials that have to be coated with, with light sensitive, uh, basically, you know, paint on brush on type materials, whether that's a glass plate or a metal plate, putting that into uh, a camera, which, you know, the earliest cameras would have been very crude, of course. And so they also required a lot of light. So usually you're working with longer exposure times to, to get an image and then you had to go through this elaborate process afterward to keep it protected from additional light, fix it, wash it, all this kind of stuff. And, and a lot of that still holds today, especially if you work in film or alternative process. But there was just a huge amount of effort and expense that mm -hmm. went into early photography, right? So I think that naturally led to a desire for those who were going to delve into it to say, well, how, how could we maybe turn this into something that's economically beneficial too? And so you had things like portraiture right? And, and this was maybe one of the first rubs with painting, where for, for forever, if you want a, a portrait of yourself or your family, or you're an important person in society, and you're going to pay a, a, a portraitist. Uh, now, photographers are on the scene, and they're saying, well, I can get that done for you in less time with potentially more, uh, you know, sharpness and accuracy and, and whatever. And so it, it starts to become popular and gain a foothold. And there's now an economic side to the business of photography and it starts to develop more and more. So, um, you know, really as, as you continue to go along, we graduate from, from things like the daguerreotype to easier processes pretty quickly, uh, things like the ambrotype and, uh, eventually wet plate collodion and, and all these other kind of things. And some of these processes are still used today and, and popular today for other reasons. Some of the photographers we're going to look at, they're alive today and they're using mm -hmm. those processes. Right. But, um, anyway, that's, that's sort of the, the launch of photographic interest society wide. And, um, you know, it becomes something that people can do as a hobby in their spare time. If they have the, 
the means and, and disposable income maybe to buy a camera setup and, and so on. Um, but then I think beyond that, when you have this rub with especially painting uh, or, or draftsmanship versus photography, there's definitely a, a period of time where it's not accepted as a particularly artistic medium. There were quite quickly artists attempting to make it into something that was viable artistically. But there was a lot of pushback, a lot of um, condescension, maybe, from uh, the, the kind of the establishment in terms of the painting world saying, well, okay, you're, you're freezing a moment or a, a few moments in time with these chemicals and whatever. You know, there's, there's no expressiveness to that. There's, there's not the labor that goes into making a painting. It's, um, it's just not the same. It's not in the same class. And uh, for what it's worth, I'll give you my own personal opinion. I mean, I, I still regard painting as potentially the, the most astounding visual art that we have. I mean, I, when you look at the work of painters, especially when you can see it in person, there's just incredible things that, that paint can do that photography can't do. Um, also vice versa, and maybe we'll talk about that more uh, here in a few minutes, but um, there's, the, there's this rub and it, it takes people like uh, early days, you know, Julia, Margaret Cameron or Robert Demachy to come along and really start to push photography out into the public and, and have the photographs themselves be worthwhile enough, communicative enough, expressive enough, beautiful enough to really capture people's interest to say, I would want to go see that in a gallery. Or if it's in front of me, I'm going to have, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to have a moment where I see mm -hmm. it and I literally want to stop and take it in. And so that then kicks off the, just the, the combined interest of some commercial viability with photography and now more and more artistic viability. Obviously, then in the 20th century, photography starts to become ubiquitous. Um, a couple of things that contribute to that are, are just the global scene. When we have world wars going on, there's now this ability to, rather than via historical large painting or something that could even mythologize, you know, wars of the past and, and conflict and these kind of things. We have war photography that gets born, right? And, and I think that's probably maybe even a way that's, uh, we all know that, but it, in my mind, at least, it, it was another thing that really launched photography into the mainstream. Now, now news outlets can have photographs to accompany the stories that they're writing. It can be pretty directly from the front lines of some kind of local or, or national or global conflict. Um, so that's going on as we go through, you know, World War One and then on to World War II. And in the meantime, of course, there's still just the natural progression of photographers working in that medium to, to just create more and more um, excellent artwork and commercial viability is expanding. The whole medium is getting much easier to use as we start to develop smaller cameras that are portable, uh, more easily used film that can be processed uh, quite a bit more simply without the same harsh or harmful chemicals. And you can do it yourself or you can have someone do it for you and it doesn't take that long and you get the results back and on and on. So um, by the mid 20th century, photography is in full flow, right? And you have um, almost a an art unto itself that evolves around building wonderful cameras to use. So you've got companies like, uh, you know, Voigtlander and Leica and Hasselblad and some of these others that um, they're creating just beautiful machines that people want to use to take photographs. They're 
ergonomic and, and you can take them with you anywhere and so on. And so that, that really just kind of keeps the flywheel turning, right? And, and the 20th century was uh, a massive boon for photographers and, and the whole art. There's also some seminal figures that contribute to it, right? So I mentioned Julia Margaret Cameron, Robert Demarkey in the 20th century. There's many, some of whom we're going to talk about, but uh, especially people like a Richard Avedon or Steichen and Stieglitz or Ansel Adams was huge, uh, right? I don't think you can really talk about photography in the 20th century and the popularization of it without talking about somebody like Adams. So um, now today, obviously, photography is so ubiquitous. It's built into every every little gadget we have, and you can snap a photograph, uh, whether it's worthwhile or not is another thing. But um, I think that there's now maybe today uh, a continued desire to, I see some of this, you know, getting back to, to quote the roots of photography and trying to figure out how to create uh, images that really have meaning because we're so inundated now with digital cameras that it's incredibly easy to make an image. Um, you know, if you have a few hundred dollars, you can go buy a digital camera this afternoon and begin making potentially excellent photographs with it. Um, but certainly quick little snapshots and within moments it's shared worldwide. Right. So, um, I would doubt that the photographers of 150 years ago could have even remotely imagined how much the medium would take off and, uh, and now just pervade our lives. But, um, I think, I think it's a pretty good summation, you know, of, uh, of kind of where we were and where we've arrived at. And later on in the show, you and I'll talk about some of our conjectures about the future of photography. Obviously the final thing we can mention at this moment, and then I'll let you jump in here is uh, the move toward motion picture. So mm -hmm. uh, as soon as, as cinema comes on the scene again, you know, in the 20th century, as that's developing uh, from the work of people like Edward Muybridge and, and some others, um, as they go along and try to say, well, okay, now it's not enough for it to be a still frame. How can I make this thing move? Uh, now it's obviously just uh, an enormous part of our lives in every single way. So um, yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good quick little summary take. Anything you want to add on that? Um, well, I guess j just a couple of questions. So like to, to go back to um, when you know, photography first comes on the scene and there's going to be, you know, at least some people involved in photography that uh, are discussing it, you know, as an art form, you know, pretty much immediately, you know, that, you know, f like from the get go, um, there's going to be, you know, e even if you don't want to concede right away that it's art, like you're going to have to say that there is some sort of um, discretionary process involved, right, where uh, a human being goes around surveys a scene and decides um this part of it right like th this piece of it has something that ought to be captured because it's i don't know uh either it's you know important some way or uh, uh con conventionally beautiful in some way mm -hmm. uh or exciting in some way They're like there is some sort of discretionary process right which which does have a kind of like art like uh, uh quality to it right um like sure. uh, uh, and, and on the other hand, so like, um, it, it's, it's, it's perhaps like from the start, uh, uh, trying to, you know, put this claim on, on art for itself. Do you think like some of the initial, uh, dislike of photography or just like not taking it seriously 
how much of it was in fact like purely, you know, this isn't a, an art form and how much of it was just this immediate recognition by many, many painters, right? That they could be in some way supplanted because mm-hmm. um, there are, you know, great painters in this world. There's also painters that are, you know, technically good at uh, maybe copying what they see, or maybe they're technically good at portraiture. Um, and if just like mere technicality is is, is all that you have uh, uh, going for you, like I, I would imagine that just immediately, like if this is your line of work, you could see this being displaced, right? Especially since you can't go like to the salons, right? You can't start hanging up your art, right? Most of these people are not uh, artists in the way that we would use the term. Yeah. Um, so like, what, what, do you, what do you think might've been going on? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. First of all, early photography had uh, essentially no color palette. So yeah. when you have only black and white or maybe some slight sepia tones or, or whatever the, the chemical processes of those days were yielding, um, sometimes with a little bit of color distortion or discoloration, depending on uh, if you did something on accident or potentially on purpose. But bottom line is we're pretty much talking about black and white images. And I think it pretty immediately in the painting community, they're probably thinking, well, color has always been one of the, the hallmarks of, of painting and we've still got that and photography doesn't. So if you're going to have a portrait taken, really, you know, why wouldn't you want uh, beautiful, beautiful created lighting, beautiful skin tones, uh, the ability to, if your garment is bright scarlet red, I paint it bright scarlet red, right? Okay, mm-hmm. if a, a photograph comes in and renders that what a slightly different shade of gray you know what why would that be desirable or why would that be in any way better than what what painters can do and again i i think that um this goes on for a while and there's there's kind of that rub um both commercially and artistically but it, it becomes pretty apparent quickly that there's room for both and and today there's still room for both i think one um key way I've thought about that over time is, well, we had wonderful developments in both of these mediums simultaneously. So as we're going through the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, we've got painting still making strides. We've had some of the greatest painters that have ever lived that were within the past 100 to 150 years, creating work of still immense quality and value that we all want to go see. At the same time, some photographers got on the rise and they're doing something different. And, um, you know, I, I think anymore there, there wasn't maybe so much of a, of a threat, um, or, or even necessarily a competition as a recognition that both mediums can accomplish some of the same thing, but a lot of different things. And especially as you start moving toward things like the documentary style of photography, um, it just it can just do some things painting can't right if if you're going to have some of the most famous images uh, from the past 100 years that are truly moments frozen in time that were happening right then that someone saw on the street or in a landscape or whatever um painting could imaginatively create something like that but it can't it can't do the exact same thing um so the other thing that becomes of interest to me is over time you have um whether they would say it, you know, publicly or not, we we certainly now know there were a lot of photographers interested in painting or who dabbled in painting, and there were a lot of painters who had a camera around, right, and would take some photographs or even maybe start to use that as a way to then uh, do some sketches or prime some ideas that they could then execute on the canvas. So 
and there's plenty of of uh you know whatever you call it like uh synergy maybe between the two uh we get more and more of that as time goes by um hopefully that answers your question at least in part but yeah Yeah, um, there's a realization of the viability of both mediums basically yeah and and i also want to sort of like start zeroing in you know around the time when photography was able to start pushing back start making its actual claims for greatness uh, couldn't Mm be really uh ignored but maybe uh before that um do you want to just kind of like in a a kind of you know high level way uh uh bottom up and also maybe top down like discuss what like like what exactly makes photography worthwhile compared to let's say painting or Mm -hmm. um you know maybe any other kind of visual art uh, what makes photography work? You know, what makes for a good photo? Um, we should probably just, just uh, define uh, some of the stuff, uh, since again, maybe a lot of viewers will have different views on this than us. Um, so that at least they, they uh, see kind of like, you know, the consistency in in what we're going to argue, right. For many of the photos that we're going to look at, right. Um, and, and how we came upon some kind of, um, you know, let's call it like a little mini system, right? That at least gives you clues as to uh, uh, what what different answers ought to be. So, I mean, mm-hmm. how, how would you how would you like start uh, answering that question? You know, what 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 makes photography worthwhile in general? Maybe you could start with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think that one of the key things is that ability to to capture and freeze these moments in time and we we never really had a way to do that before so um there's there's a certain amount of pre-visualization that can go into photography uh, whether you're doing something that's contrived you know a still life or a studio portrait or if you're out there on the streets or in a landscape um any which way you cut it there's there's definitely an artistic drive behind good and great photography and a desire to either capture something out there in the world in a compelling enough way to, to draw you in as the viewer and and force you to sit there in front of it and, and really uh, mull it over, or to, especially for the best photographers, develop your own style uh, as time goes by and be able to, I guess, communicate beyond just the mirror the mere documentary, if we're going to talk about in a while, someone like Fan Ho, right, who you you told me mm-hmm. really struck you. Well, most of his photographs, I mean, it's just slices of life. It, he, in a lot of ways, was a documentary photographer, but he was able to infuse so much drama into a lot of those scenes by the way, the choices he made, the way that he that he chose his camera setup, his, his film, the times that he was going to go to these places, whatever. Um, and I think photography, like painting, you can benefit from uh, accumulating more and more experience over time to, again, help you with some of that pre-visualization, right? So any of these photographers, especially who are out shooting in the moment, um, I'll talk about this in the context of Ansel Adams, too, probably later. You know, he'd spe- he spoke so often of revisiting the same scene dozens of times over his lifetime to then give you the one image that we know from that place that's iconic, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this is this is the work of an artist, right? This is someone who's constantly 
dredging up new ideas, thinking through fresh compositions, um, fresh conceptions of, of a place, time, space, person, whatever. Um, I, th I think that photography too, it, again, if you want to draw similarities to painting, you know, it can create a lot of, if not all of the same uh, kind of scenes, right? So anything from a portrait to a self-portrait, um, you can create a, a kind of historically dramatic set of photographs. You can, uh, you know, maybe one thing it's, I do still think is unique to photography is like out there on the street, right? And just capturing something right then in the moment. Um, but you can do landscapes, you can, and now you can do that in color, right? So for a long time, again, there, there wasn't color involved the way there would have been for a Cezanne or a, you know, a Monet or whoever who's out in the countryside and, and painting a landscape in their own way. Um, and especially as the, the uh, photographic mediums expanded and there were more and more options, you have um, this push among photographers to not just do straight documentary photography. So again, even someone like an Ansel Adams, um, the more that you read about his, his technique and the way he was thinking about things, there was a lot of, of tinkering there were a lot of different choices made to make it look exactly how it looks if it were just a straight landscape image uh without any of these other choices he made and the way he printed it it wouldn't be compelling i can promise you that and there's mm -hmm. so much landscape photography over time and, and present day today that to me is completely boring you know i mean there's just not much to it and i'd much rather see a painting um but there there certainly are different techniques that can enter in that, that can make a, a photograph, you know, different and heighten it. So uh, composition is one of the key ones. Uh, I don't want to, you know, go too deep into like five points of great photographic composition. There are like too many videos already out there or, or courses about stuff like that. I think a lot of it is intuitive, right? Like any art form, there's a certain amount of you learn all those rules and then you learn exactly what the right way to break them would be to actually make an interesting image. Um, someone like a Michael Ackerman that we'll talk about later, I think is, is a good example of that. Um, but no question, especially with black and white, which is still sort of the, 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 the purview of photography. I don't, maybe you could tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know if too many black and white painters, uh, right. Where mm -hmm. they're working like exclusively in grayscale, uh, to do what they do. I'm sure there's some out there, but, um, I mean, it's, it's, historically we had, uh, you know, lots of, uh, it wasn't always like this, right? But we had lots of black and white, you know, uh, ink painting in China, right? Sure. And so some of those are legitimately uh, great paintings. But yeah, generally speaking, I feel like um, with something like like painting, if you're if you're able to uh, use color, like, the more stuff that you could use, right? People will oftentimes try to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Just kind of like. Um, you know, either out of actual necessity or perceived necessity, right? Because, and you see, you see this kind of like in the overextensions uh, in art today, right? Where people do so much and too much and, and simply because they think that's kind of like the way to get at art, right? I mean, you, you could get at art uh, with minimalism. You could get mm -hmm. at art in, in far more complex ways, um, and uh, they're, they're, they're both they're both valid, right? So generally, yeah, like we don't have lots of like black and white painting, you know, kind of for that reason. Um, and, and in fact, I think you know, compared to like uh, black and white uh, painting, 
um, you're probably better off doing what some early photographers did where you could have, you know, you could have a, a black and white uh, photograph and yet you edit it in a way where it almost looks like, you know, a Monet style impressionism. Sure. Um, and, and, yeah. you know, that, that's, and, and that naturally like lends itself very nicely to, to, cause like uh, on the one hand, like it has the veneer, right. And, and the assumptions of a photograph and yet you're able to layer on top of it, um, uh, techniques that might be, you know, just kind of like harder to execute if it was just painting. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so, so yeah. yeah. And also just like, um, so, so, so for me, um, and, and I guess this is uh, implied with a lot of what, what you said, but when I, when I think of like what makes, um, like what makes, let's say photography worthwhile, right. Compared to other art forms, what even makes it an art? Uh, I would simply say that it, you know, like any art, it introduces specific rules and, and boundaries and things that are possible, things that are impossible, things that are difficult, Right. Uh, in a technical sense, like it is difficult to learn how to, you know, pick up a paintbrush and to uh, paint realistically, for instance, um, sure. with uh, photography, that might not necessarily be the case. Right. You might be able to shoot, you know, realistic photos, let's call them uh, very quickly. Right. It mm -hmm. might be a few buttons and you might become very competent uh, at it even after a few days. But you know that that's uh, th that's simply because the, the 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 boundaries right that photography introduces they're not they're not the painterly kind of boundaries that painting has for photography the thing that makes it tough like uh, of the various elements um, I think the the key one is the fact that um, with photography reality is all around you right. Uh, you you don't go around uh, for the most part, you know, painting and creating your reality, right? If if a scene is able to offer something, it can offer it, right? And if it doesn't, you move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is, is that uh, unless you know what to look for, re the reality that's all around you, most of it doesn't deserve to be captured, right? Sure. Most sure. of it does not have any kind of poetic tension. Most of it is not, you know, uh, ambiguous in some way. Most of it is not, you know, multi-layered in its implications. So what you have to do, like the, the difficulty that um, uh, photography introduces, right, that helps uh, uh, cement it as art resides in, in those facts, right? You have to be extremely selective about mm -hmm. what the world offers. And in fact, like you have to be, you know, exclusionary of like 99.999% you know, of all possibilities in a sense, right? So um, uh, just knowing what to select, right? That That's one of the difficulties. Um, another difficulty is that as you go around trying to select, you know, these like sections of reality that are uh, worth capturing and, you know, in, in their, in their like state, right. Cause like, that's another thing, like things are constantly changing states. And, mm -hmm. uh, one thing that might be worthwhile to capture a second ago might not be worthwhile, you know, a, a second late layer later. Right. Um, yeah. so, so th that's like another thing, like reality is fleeting, you either capture a moment or you don't, right? And, and that element of time could absolutely change what's possible or or not possible for you, right? Depending on uh, what you're trying to capture, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, that's another difficulty. 
And uh, another one is that um, unlike painting, which, you know, yes, you could like paint a scene or it could come from, from your mind uh, for the photographers that, you know, that, that do kind of like stage scenes, right. They want somebody to pose for them or they sort of do, you know, maybe some kind of complex, you know, some sort of more elaborate setup. Um, if you do something that's overstaged in so many cases, uh, it, it's just going to fall flat, right? Um, yeah. you, you have to keep tons of naturalism intact. Like when we're going to be talking about the Chris Marker of film, La uh, Jeti, right? That 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 film has so many, um, you know, so many great shots, right? That are mm -hmm. just individually would be great, you know, would be great um, uh, snapshots of reality, would be great photographs. And although ostensibly you have, you know, two two main actors there. Uh, they're so kind of natural, right? They, you know, even if they were kind of like um, mediocre actors, you would eventually capture them if you're a good photographer in some kind of natural moment, right? So something that is too staged is also going to be a pitfall, just like uh, you could have pitfalls in um, uh, 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 painting, right? Like, uh, like everything has its own kind of landmines, right? When it comes to the arts, um, and, and, and for photography, I, th I think one of the things that could easily happen is, uh, you, you could overly, uh, stage something where it, it just clearly, th then it becomes like, well, what did you do? Like you just kind of, you know, then you did do that thing that I alluded to in the beginning where you just got a camera, you learn how to press some buttons and you just captured, you know, something that's just like occurring, right. That, mm -hmm. that, that's the problem of something being too staged. It, it, it starts to go back to that initial uh, uh, you know, is photography really a part if all that you're doing is just pressing a button? Well, in that case, you might have essentially done the equivalent of just pressing a button simply because you 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 overly sort of developed and staged something that needed to be natural. So anyway, mm -hmm. that's kind of how I would discuss some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's all well said. And one of the other things that we mentioned in the show notes, we've talked about it a little bit so far, is the uh, ability for over time photographers to pull some of the ideas of painting into photographs and then eventually a number of painters started pulling photographic concepts into their painting so whether that be photorealistic painting or or whatever but to your point um with some of the earliest photographers especially and, and this was partly due to some technical limitations but also i think just a part of the zeitgeist of the time was early photography you had a lot of uh pictorialist type photographs now essentially for anyone that's not familiar what that would refer to as those softer focused or diffused light or uh, almost trying to mimic the idea of sfumato in painting mm -hmm. with your photographs and uh, i think probably robert demarchi and uh, maybe julia margaret cameron would be really good examples of that but steichen and stieglitz have some of that in in um even in their best photographs and so we'll we'll begin pulling up some examples here before too much longer probably but what you see early days is that was really the push amongst photography was was this pictorialist style uh, how can you go find the quote-unquote the best possible light or the most dramatic light that's occurring out there in the world or or sometimes in the studio and uh, imbue that into your photograph and it it was done with those alternative process types and the, the the lenses of the time right we just didn't yet have 
hyper sharp lenses like we have today where something can be in incredible detail. Um, so they sort of use that to their advantage in a way to say, okay, well, if that's part of the limitation, then where does that lead me as an artist to go mm. and, and to take these images? Um, I think maybe the final thing that, that we would, that I would say, I put this in my show notes to you is again, like where does photography have its merit? I think in, in some of the things it can do and document too, like sometimes, you know, I, I know of some photographers who would be, for example, astrophotographers where they're taking these like deep space images. And I think that gets uh, beyond the realm of anything you'd call artistic quite quickly. It's really just a really extreme form of documentary photography. And in my opinion, a lot of ways, but if you have some image of a nebula from either someone's, you know, incredibly high powered, uh, personal camera that they have or something like a Hubble space telescope or whatever, there's no question that photography has also expanded uh, the world for people and the universe for people in ways that, that painting couldn't necessarily do. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, again, there's, even when you look at color photography, the, the best color photography that, that can be out there to me, it does not approach what color does in painting. And that's me speaking as a photographer, right? I, I can't paint a lick. So uh, that maybe that would be quote, my bias is to, to try to look for ways that photography is just you know, better than painting or whatever. I don't think that's the case at all. I think when, you, when you're in front of a, a great painting, and especially for the great colorists from history, there's just nothing that a photograph could ever do that's going to match that and the expressiveness and so on. Uh, the, you know, scenes from pure imagination or whatever, I think it's kind of interesting because let's say you took a painter like Salvador Dali, who we've talked about on the show before, even the, the most wild conception photographically could never approach a Dali painting in terms of what's on the canvas there. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some, some limitations. Um, then you have a photographer like Philip Halsman, who was kind of whimsical and crazy and did a lot of work with Dolly together over the years and photographed him. And there's kind of the well-known like water shooting across the room with cats with a chair and Dolly, you know, like up in the front of it and whatever. Mm. And it's all kind of like this circus performance. And to your point, you know, those are kind of entertaining, but they're, and they're really well-known and to a certain extent, well-respected. I mean, technically I'm sure those are difficult photographs to pull off, but they're really just kind of, they're funny and that's about it. Right. No one would, would try to put that Halsman photograph in the same camp as the paintings of the art of the artist that's in that photograph he took. Right. I, they're, mm -hmm. you know, Dolly's so many light years ahead uh, in, in terms of what he achieved artistically, in my opinion. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I think there's just merit to both. I'm glad that they play off of and draw from one another um, and, and have throughout time and hopefully will continue to do so. Yeah. Um, and just one last thing, like, um, for the question of like, what makes for a great photograph, uh, mm -hmm. like you yeah, can I'll answer, talk. you know, you can answer that question, uh, many different ways, um, as for like all, all art forms for that matter. Uh, but sometimes it's interesting to do it, you know, through like a specific kind of lens. And I think one way you could answer it is simply by looking at film, right? So if we start, mm -hmm. if we start from the assumption that, one of the difficulties in photography uh, resides in the fact that uh, the vast majority of reality ought not to be captured. Then what you would do end up capturing is the filter, 
Well, we we have cinema, right? And, and you know, great films are their own kind of filter. Um, they could be, you know, anywhere from, you know, ninety to one hundred and twenty plus minutes, right? Uh, for for a great movie, there's already been a kind of like selection process that uh, it it undertook, right? Uh, the director decided uh, what shots are going to make it in, what wouldn't make it in, um, and and by that process, you you end up coming out with something that um you know for like lots of like great filmmakers like uh all, many individual shots could be just like a great photographs you know kind of you know almost mm -hmm. by happenstance right if you if, if 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 you take enough of these like in a great film right you're gonna you're gonna end up with like individually uh, great shots and great stills um at the same time like since these are movies and we have actors uh, not, you know, there's plenty, there's plenty, uh, like, that's the reason why you wouldn't expect every still from a given movie to be, uh, like, a great photo. It cannot yeah. be by definition, you know, well, with the exception of, you know, some something like, um, you know, something like the Chris Marker film, uh, just generally speaking, like, you're, you're going to have things that, you know, need motion, that need, you know, perhaps, like, extra drama, like uh, uh, it, when you sent me that link on uh, the stills uh, that were selected by uh, Scarufi uh, in his in his site, um, he for like for like Woody Allen, right? For uh, he he decided to capture some of the kind of most famous images from Annie Hall, where they're kind of you know standing around waiting to get inside the uh, movie theater, and then that you know scene with Marshall McCollum uh, starts mm -hmm. um, and he had like two stills from from that particular scene one of them has a uh, kind of like more naturalistic woody allen and he's just kind of like standing around he's kind of like uh annoyed or maybe something's bothering him right and then you had another one where he's just clearly talking to the camera and it's very you know it's very dramatic you know he's kind of displaced from the scene and he has this very dramatic almost funny look in his face and you know that that level of staging would not permit this to to be like a just like a a, a regular like a regular great photograph you know what i mean Correct. whereas yeah. maybe yeah. maybe the more naturalistic one where he's just kind of standing around and you get the sense that you know maybe these two people are in a relationship and one or both of them are annoyed for whatever reason that does capture uh, uh, uh like you know some sort of tension some sort of ambiguity that what I just described just doesn't have it because, you know, it's fulfilling the necessities of a film as opposed to um, anything else. Right. So that's just like one of the lenses that I, that I would use. Right. Ironically, it's one of those things where the paradox is, yes, you could get a lot of great ideas from cinema in terms of what makes for a, a great shot, but that same movie will provide you all the other reasons why, you know, every single still cannot be a great photo. Right. And, and why, you know, like cinema just fulfills other functions. But the, the way that they're in this kind of feedback loop and the way that they could just impart, you know, so much information about one another, um, you know, uh, technically and also just like uh, the more kind of abstract stuff that we're talking about. I, I think it's very useful. Yeah, I, I think you make a lot of great points there. And it, it very well serves your filter comments from earlier, where even in a film which has most of reality filtered out to begin with from those pieces of reality that the film might be showing you there's still now a lot of that that wouldn't work as great still photographs mm -hmm. and so yeah there 
they're obviously cousins, but still very different um, in, in their approach in the end, I, I think you'd have to say. And it's also interesting that um, when we watch a, a quote, normal film, not something like La Jetée, when a, when a um, director or cinematographer uses something like a really long still take, it surprises us, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that, that kind of stops you short for a moment. Um, so when they really core into something, whether that's a Chelan or a Bellatar or a Tarkovsky or a Kubrick, whoever it might be, um, it's interesting how, how that works and can be very effective when done well in the context of a film is for a director to say this still you're going to sit there and you're going, when you expect motion, when you expect something to be happening, no, we're going to make you sit there and look at this still frame for, you know, in a, in a movie, a a still frame that's any longer than a maybe five count can start to feel really long a lot of the time, you know? So, um, the, the, the directorial choices that get made on things like that, I think are really, uh, doubly interesting for, you know, someone who's a photographer, especially mm-hmm. because you'd, you'd sit there wondering, you know, okay, I'm no film director, but if I were, is, is that what I would have chosen as the thing to core into for five, 10, 30 seconds, you know, depending. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, they, they definitely, um, communicate with one another film and, and cinema do that or uh, photography and cinema do, you know, that way. Um, would you be able to uh, tell us uh, something about about uh, Al- Alfred Stiglitz, the photographer um, from, I guess, like the t- turn of the centuries when he first started right right before the 1900s, actually, I think his most, um, let me see, maybe his most, mm-hmm. what was it? Th- yeah, this one is his, uh, I think this is like 18, maybe 97 or something. Yeah. Um the last joke this one's called, right? Yeah, yeah the last joke, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, 1887 it's it's up here. They give you the um yeah. Um I mean do, do you want to give some sort of like background uh, on him before we discuss uh, some of the photos? Uh yeah, I I can try to. I'll confess that I haven't like read Stieglitz's biography in great detail. So I, mm. I don't necessarily know a ton about him. Um, other than, you know, you see right there on the top of the Wikipedia article, he's married to Georgia O'Keeffe. So he took quite a few photos of her over the years and their work kind of, uh, you know, played off of one another, influenced one another. He, he was definitely um, one of the core popularizers of mm. photography and people who forced it to be taken seriously. I think he did quite a bit of curation for um you know maybe it was the museum of modern art or or some others um and i i think he he was one who was in photography's inner sanctum so to speak throughout Mm -hmm. his life right so the the quality of his own work is obviously what drove him there uh to be you know considered strong enough to then judge other work and and begin to really kind of winnow down what made for good photography at that time um, but that's, that's probably about all I, I know of him personally, but in terms of his, his photographic output, I think he was also, as you see, even from these first few frames, um, one of the most diverse initial great photographers. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't one who was sitting there saying, well, I'm a portrait photographer and I'm going to take just dozens and dozens and dozens of great portraits. He, he certainly took many great portraits, but uh, that wasn't his his deal, right? So he went out into the world. He was in the streetscapes. He was in landscapes. 
Um, he obviously was taking something like the last joke, you know, again, if you think about the cameras he would have had to be using at that time, he definitely, I mean, I, I don't know a lot about or really anything about the story behind this photograph, but if I were just to happen upon it and you told it, you told me it was from 1887, as a photographer, I'm sitting there thinking to a certain extent, how the hell did he capture this candid of an image? <laughs> because mm -hmm. This is something that you would probably see from like an Henri Cartier-Bresson in the mid 20th century and think was a great photo, but he would have had a Leica 35 millimeter camera, very easy to take a snapshot of this. Stieglitz would have had to have probably a large format camera. It's on a tripod. He's photographing this maybe on a piece of film or, or even more likely a glass plate of some kind. And it's not easy. You know, there's nothing simple about catching this. So I don't know how much this was staged versus just candid, but um, you know, this is obviously a, a kind of a wonderful street photograph at that time. The expressiveness of the people, it's something that would potentially compete with a painting in some of its ideas and execution, but it's still different than a painting. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that a painter would at all choose this composition, especially of the, the group of people and the figures. Mm -hmm. But here Stieglitz is, um, you know, finding this out in the world and and moving to capture it. So... Um, yeah, when you go through the, some of the rest of his archive, you've got, um, really beautiful landscape work where he's very content to obscure a lot of what you see and go with, you know, yeah, the hand of man could, could give us maybe a little bit of sense of this. Technically, maybe this is a cityscape rather than a landscape, but here's kind of that soft focus pictorialist style that I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Right. And we're going to see this with a number of the photographers from this time who we might pull up their work. Um, but at the same time, he, he's, there's dynamism to this, right? So this is just photography composition 101 in certain ways. He's got the train tracks, which make for very interesting and beautiful line. Um, that would have been a decision he made, right? Oh, those tracks there, those actually look interesting. It's not just. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 yeah, so, so just when you say an interesting line, right? I mean, this, this obviously has interplay, you know, with like horizon, both in photography as well as like painting. What exactly yeah. do you mean by line? Uh, what, why, uh, and why would that be important? And, and, and what is this, what does this do exactly, uh, for, for that concept, right? Some viewers might want to, you know, check off some boxes and understand some things. So like, how, how would you, um, characterize that? Sure. So uh, again, you know, what I would say here is he's uh, in a composition like this, um, you know, it's, it isn't, isn't his greatest photograph and it's not the greatest photograph anyone's ever seen. But again, just for a moment, think about the, the pre-visualization he would have had to have, right? Because he doesn't have a digital camera in his hand to catch this train as it's coming at him. So he would have had to probably scout this multiple times he would have been in and around this particular area of the city and one day thought to himself, there's a composition there. I think that, again, that something like the, the way the curvature of the line with the train tracks here, uh, right, the way that they intersect one another and then fade off into the distance, um, you know, that makes for a very strong kind of bottom left quadrant of the mm -hmm. image. But then he's made other choices, like in the, toward the upper right, he's got the roof line of that building he's got um in the upper left the the telephone wires right these are a totally different kind of line they're straight so there's some juxtaposition with the beautiful curvature of the railroad tracks he's got some some interesting straight line choices here also like the main uh telephone wire here is not totally straight 
So that's kind of interesting, right? Um, to to a lot of photographers in a way that might also be bothersome because uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you're too focused on just like, ah, I want things to look or be perfect or whatever, you know, he obviously was like, oh, that's kind of interesting that it doesn't appear mm-hmm. straight in this, yeah. in this image. There's a, maybe a distant smokestack That would be a positive, you know, in my view. Yeah. Like w- one thing that I noticed in some of the best photos that I've been looking at is just how much, um, you know, little subtle, like little inversions provide, you know, variety, not only for an individual photograph when you go from, you know, quadrant to quadrant, but variety, you know, across photographs uh, from, from the same photographer. Um, so definitely like, I, I could definitely see, see people that, yeah, they would view, uh, the, the, the telephone pole, pole, uh, um, and, and say, Hey, you know, this is, um, yeah, it, it, if this is an imperfection, right in their minds, that means like, for whatever reason, like they have a certain set of values where things need to be in this way, like totally vertical, right. Which is just, you know, well, first of all, like this, it seems like it's very hard to justify, but th- that, that does seem to be kind of common. Like, I feel like if you would ask people like, um, you know, they're just starting on photography, maybe they would be annoyed that something is kind of bothering uh, the, the thing that they're kind of like uh, imagining it ought to be. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the, with the idea of, of the lines. Like, I mean, e- even the, the title, right. Um, to some extent, like you could say the titling is part of the art as well. Uh, hand yeah. of man and you know this at, at this point in human history i believe this is like what 1903 uh mm-hmm. like at, at this point in human history this is probably one of the best shots that you could make if you wish to you know uh, make some sort of argument about um uh, like just just human manipulation of the world right because yeah. on the uh, on the one hand like you have like you know the start of like machinery right um that 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 works kind of you know uh, on you know on on ed- on engines right that works um, in ways that were unimaginable you know even a, a century before uh, mm-hmm. you have the creation like you said of these lines that you know to certain viewers right they almost might seem a little bit like you know an abstraction right but this is like human manipulation and this is what it would look like right it would look like these lines they are intersecting and if you know if you're an animal looking at this you don't even know the reason why you would have all this intersection you don't see stuff like this in nature you Mm -hmm. have you know this, this smoke that is um uh just obscuring even you know much of uh, maybe even you know the lens might have been affected by by the dust, right? Um, you, you you have this you know like no no tree cover at all, right? You just have kind of like things that used to be trees. Um, yeah. You have dust on the ground, right? And you have this like haze uh, a, a, as a backdrop that um, you know this is all clearly like all human intervention, and uh, you know there's there's uh, I feel like as far as like anything that he could have captured, this is one of the best looks at what he's trying to get to in the title. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, even as far as that goes, right. This is uh, this, 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 this works on, on those levels as well. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple of final comments on this one. So you, you mentioned the smoke coming from the the train there in the middle. So that's maybe these, in my opinion, this, strongest or second strongest uh visual compositional element here imagine this photograph without the smoke how much does it lose it loses a lot 
right? Yeah. Um, and another photographer we'll talk about in a while, Andre Kirtech, I think was a, another master of some of these kind of things. But when I've read a little bit of the commentary of his photography, one of the best comments I saw was, um, you know, it, it, this photograph is, it's not that it's nothing, but it's, it's not really worthwhile without element A or B or C, you know, whatever that, um, mm-hmm. that critic was trying to, to talk about. And we'll, I'll show you some exact examples because there's one of Kirtets with a train in it. <laughs> so it'll be a nice parallax with this. But if the train weren't in that Kirtesh photograph we'll look at in a while, you see how much it would lose. If the smoke weren't billowing out of the train in this photograph, it it's literally not a great photograph of all time, mm-hmm. right? So um, that's a key element, the the dark, the, the tonality of that too, right? The, the dark black smokestack compared with the white of the clouds behind. And let's, the final comment I'll make is to circle back on yours about the titling. I will make a blanket statement here. Some people would probably disagree with me, but in my opinion, titling is one of the weakest parts of the history of photography as an art form. Um, it, it's maddening to me how many photographs just get literally called untitled 1972, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's just kind of drives me mad because um, I, I don't know if like photographers, a lot of them think, oh, well, you know, it just totally speaks for itself, which it can. I'm not saying every photograph has to have a title. Um, but either that or even someone like Ansel Adams, right? Like every title is just literally the name of the place the photograph was taken and the year, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, Yosemite Valley, 1947. It's just incredibly boring to me. Um, so when Stieglitz takes the final step as an artist to call this the hand of man, it's another thing that makes this a great image. Um, you know, if it were just called Train Tracks, 1903, it's it's not quite the same, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, Anyway, yeah, I mean, this, this is a good example of, uh, of of his work, certainly. I don't know if there are any other photos of his. Yeah, yeah you know, this I mean, yeah, you know, obviously very, very impressionistic, um, very, mm-hmm. you know, v- very Chinese ink painting, you know, as well. I mean, this, this yeah. honestly could have been, right, this could have been uh, Chinese ink painting. Um, you know, one of those things where he, he, he probably recognized right away, like, look, this is, you could do things to manipulate, uh, the, these pictures where after you, you, after you do your, you know, discretionary, uh, selection process, um, there's a bunch of stuff that you could do to kind of expand upon that, uh, mm-hmm. make it, you know, further and further discretionary. You are no longer truly and fully and only at the whims of, you know, reality as it's sort of dictated to you by the reality around you or rather by the facts around you you could sort of you know hone in on some sort of underlying reality right mm-hmm. by by uh, uh, editing a photo and i mean uh, you know v- very 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 well done you know just just by the way you know there's a few things you can say about it, i guess but even just uh, on account of the way it, it it bleeds and blurs into impressionism you know a painting right it's just uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's just very good right for what it's doing well and yeah exactly um this is a photo of his i'm not sure i'd seen before but reacting to this in real time a couple other comments i would make yeah perfect you just zoomed in on it so i'd say again you know think about the things that 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 make this a quality photograph that if they were missing it's not quite the same the the beautiful reflection on the wet road the wet Mm -hmm. pavement from the trees is is kind of a core element to this right imagine if that's not there 
we lose a lot, right? The reflection from the horse and, and, and carriage. Um, so again, you know, this is to, to just harken back a little bit to our earlier point about this would have been an image days, weeks, months in the making for him, I'm guessing. Um, maybe not. I mean, it's certainly possible he was just walking around with his camera and happened upon this and was able to set up, but, um, he probably more likely thought to himself at some point, okay, I want to go back there when it's rained, you know, freshly rained. It mm -hmm. can't be raining because in, in those days your equipment would probably get ruined. So it, it has to have been kind of fresh off of a rain. I need some kind of interest in the street. So, okay, what would be good? Mm -hmm. Well, a, a horse and carriage, but I'm going to obscure that. I don't want a hyper-realistic image of it. Um, I want the trees. Can I find a composition with trees that curve a little bit? as they mm -hmm. go upward rather than they're straight? Can I find uh, beautiful re reflections that lead back toward the start of the image, right? All these kind of things I, I, I'm assuming and feel pretty confident assuming he would have been thinking about ahead of time to make this come together. So, Yeah, I mean, yeah. E even this is a detail, right? You have uh, a, a mm -hmm. seems like a light pole, right? I mean, it's yeah. just... It's just uh, adding some variety to what we get as trees here you have like a you know pretty thin tree i guess that's a little bit of variety but th this also makes it much more street like right where mm -hmm. um you know it could be a horse and carriage you know maybe like on a country road this kind of does give it you know a sense of perhaps it is in some some kind of city right um so just like you know e even as a subtle like little kind of setting placement right this is a a good detail to have right and i mean you, you, you could imagine, like, in terms of the realities that you choose to depict, right, going back to the discretionary, discretionary elements of all this, you could have easily just been like, all right, I'm going to, you know, get a bunch of trees without this thing. Or, you know, like you said earlier, like, imagine omitting the uh, the, the, the horse and carriage, right? Or imagine mm -hmm. that it, it hadn't been raining. Or maybe, um, I'm not sure, was this, oh, yeah, spring shower. So it, 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 it is a specifically rain. There's no, like, river around either. Mm -hmm. Um you know, like, yeah, all, all these things would have been lost. Right. And, and, uh, this might not have been weeks in the main making, but afterwards, I mean, the, the editing process is probably when he, you know, maybe he looked at it and, uh, seeing it as it was just wasn't sufficient, right. It needed to be obscured. Mm -hmm. Something had to happen to it or else it would have been, um, even with these like nicely composed elements, it would have been just kind of, uh, much more generic. Right. So, um, that that that's also that's also possible um so i mean here's here's another one this is a uh winter uh on fifth avenue mm. yeah yes yeah, so this one's it's interesting especially compared to the prior one because this has a lot more sharpness to it right yeah so you know, maybe in this case he thought uh, the, those lines in the snow or the, the way that mm -hmm. that looks, you know, it's important to get that in the image and have it be sharper and so on. There's still that kind of nice atmospheric fade out. Um, you know, obviously the use of, of um, perspective and, and letting those lines lead the viewer kind of all the way down the street and so on. Um, yeah. Again, yeah, you know, I, I admire this shot. I mean, it's um, to be out there in what looks like driving snow mm -hmm. uh, to, to take this, you know, his, uh, there's obviously some commitment on his part there and, and so on. Um, but yeah, this, this also prefigures, you know, like some, some later work by other artists where, uh, tracks in the snow are a, like really key visual element of theirs. Kirtesh used this a lot too. Um, so yeah, 
solid image there. Maybe not quite as strong as as the others. This feels a little bit more straight documentary to me. But yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and and I mean the, the you know he just allowed the the snow to kind of you know just be its own impressionism, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you know like the, the manipulation here does add you know an element that this the this is going to lack a little bit. Um, Yeah, I mean, here here's another uh, interesting one in terms of you know again going back to this idea of lines going to horizons here. Let's just thicken it out, make it you know just all reflective. Going back, you know, against uh, uh, the edge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this being a kind of like a de facto road. Obviously, this is uh, supposed to be Venice, um, yeah. uh, uh, but also you know like it's it it is kind of. Uh, documentary style as well but i think you one thing that you could say right for photography is given the nature of kind of like some of the more physical difficulties whether it's going out in snow or going to you know a location that maybe few people get to see i mean you know uh, you you do get a lot of like things that are uh captured you know as a pure texture right you get like the physical texture of uh the buildings here right you have Mm-hmm. Um, uh, everything, you know, being obscured down into the reflection, you have like four sharper reflections, right. Being the boats being closer, right. So these, uh, uh, shadows, um, as it were, uh, are much sharper, right. They give some variety to the more kind of like, uh, uh, uh hazy stuff you have going on in the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, you have like a source of illumination at the very top, right? You see it by the buildings that are just kind of obscuring uh, away and away. Here, that's being uh, also in the bottom, right? You have that, uh, because of the light, again, you have this greater whiteness and obscurity the further down you go. Um, so, I mean, something like this is also a, a good shot. And uh, even if it is just kind of like also a little bit more purely documentary style, um, clearly, you know, he, he he's thinking about things that are relevant to art right like it's 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 mm-hmm. just more and you're just adding more and more disc- discretionary layers on top of this right as as it goes on um see if there's anything else yeah another one here it's i guess is also kind of um a snowy, the terminal yeah yeah snowy yeah. but it's also probably kind of yeah one, one thing that i found inter- interesting about this like if you've ever seen the courses like in the winter and this is uh seems to be the winter um you know when they breathe out right you do get this like bill these billowing um you know vapor coming out of uh, their noses and uh here right it it could be anything right you're probably getting the vapor from the horses you're probably getting dust getting kicked up right mm-hmm. and you're also getting snow right um being being uh, uh kick, kicked up as well right so um you know just just how everything just kind of turns into its own like little haze like that, right? Uh, this like little confluence of haze. You know, mm-hmm. I, I found found that uh, interesting, but also just all, still kind of like a little bit documentary style. Um, let me see if there is. Are there any other ones here I, that? Yeah, I think that's a good poll from from Stieglitz. Um, portrait done there. Yeah, interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean that's that's quite painterly there, right? Yeah, um, that's so kind of almost like a Renoir or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean I, I think that's a good good few little 
images to to represent some of his style yeah. um oh you, you mentioned landscapes i guess well this is a more kind of like a uh sky but still mm-hmm. i mean yeah that's a it's a beautiful image you know um i, I think i think that's just interesting with the cloud cover and the burst of sun behind that and mm-hmm. plenty of um plenty of ambiguity on that one right yeah. so this was another thing that you know maybe photographers in the early days had to to begin to think about and conceptualize was what to leave up to the viewer to try to to draw out or to to imbue because they you know you can tell it very very directly with a camera so you know mm-hmm. what choices do you need to make in order to leave some element of interest and, and mystery to what's going on. Um, you know, that image does that pretty well. So mm-hmm. yeah. Do you want to look at uh, maybe quick, like Julia, Margaret Cameron and, and Steichen? Yeah. I have a, well. a few others here. Um, and, and uh, Demaki, cause I know you told me. Yeah. I, yeah. You thought he had some interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, so, so maybe you yeah. could uh, look at a, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Demaki. Yeah, he was French, so you know Robert Demarchis is probably the best uh, pronunciation or okay. close to that. But yeah, we could we could call him Demarchis, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, also, um, uh, I mean, do you, do you have any any uh, uh, background on him before we get into the specifics? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so he's kind of an interesting, a uh, little bit of an interesting biography, just briefly, because he was one that uh, really tried to seize the reins pretty quickly on photography as art. He was he was insistent on that. He came from a wealthy family, uh, I believe, it was a banking family in in France, and so uh, for him, it just wasn't an issue to be able to get any photographic equipment he wanted. Um, he had a dedicated studio, I think, in a a very nice home, borderline uh, like an urban mansion of sorts that he lived in. Um, his personal life suffered a bit because he was so devoted to photography that his wife and and children felt uh, ostracized and ignored at times. I think legend has it he would spend days on end in, in his part of the house, uh, which was also his studio, basically just working on photographs. So for someone to be that devoted to it as, as an art form uh, was, I think, a bit unique at the time. And he exhibited a lot. Um, he was able to really gain even an international audience at that time for his photographs, which, uh, again, was pretty rare, you know, to have people respect the work enough to come from far and wide uh, to see it. So, yeah, interesting person. And, uh, you know, he's one that if you scroll down and, and maybe start showing some examples of his work, you know, this pictorialist style was very intense uh right to yeah he would do this to the point of charcoal sketch looking photographs um i I don't know you know if someone's just looking at that image right there on a computer screen and you didn't Mm -hmm. tell them it was a photograph they might not know right you you could very easily mistake that for a drawing so yeah uh when, when i first started looking at these like i knew he was a photographer but some photographers also do some painting and i was like is this uh is this supposed to be a painting um so uh a, a, a few of these actually definitely have uh that that same quality um yeah and it, you know it's one of those things where you know i, I said the photographs cannot be uh a too like you don't ever want to say like a hard rule like it cannot be too staged because i mean i could also imagine uh, like pretty staged photographs that are you know great uh, uh on their own terms and perhaps on other terms as well 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is fairly staged, but because of the kind of uh, because uh, uh, the edits that he does and the, the painterly qualities that he lends to mo- mo- most of his photos, um, the fact that this is staged, like it, it, it feels a little less right. Like it might uh, uh, hurt something, right? I mean, um, it, it it almost feels like natural, right? To uh, to to the thing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, sure. And and even if you compare this to a lot of nude fine art painting this is uh, this is a little bit of a different take it's it's a bit more candid she's uh, still being maybe sexualized uh in in some ways but it's not kind of like a classic reclining nude of uh you know just a a beautiful woman or whatever i mean she's she's looking more contemplative there's there's some bit of of expressiveness to her form and her face and that kind of thing and of course mm-hmm. the lighting the lighting here um you're basically taking advantage of chiaroscuro type lighting from uh, above and a lot of her body and face fall into shadow. So mm-hmm. um, some smart, smart choices on his part there. Yeah. Yeah. What else, what else we have? Yeah. Street street scene. Yeah. Pretty straight ahead there. You know, nothing, nothing wild going on. I don't think uh, technically, but yeah, you know, obviously like a Degas influence yeah. on this one, right? Yeah. Um, this is, I remember this, this one was a good one. Um, you know, the, the, the door is just opening there, mm-hmm. right. Uh, on yeah. her, right. It's just such a, you know, it's just a little piece, right. But it kind of determines, you know, everything that we end up uh, seeing here in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, just to emphasize, he, he was one that uh, was well known for a lot of you know, maybe call it post-processing, right? And these days people think Photoshop when they hear that word. Uh, the, the old school version of Photoshop would have been, he was very much a tinkerer with chemicals and with printing processes and was trying to be uh, consistently on the vanguard. Again, he had the money to do that. So that was a bit unique to him maybe, or uh, the money combined with the will to a certain extent. And um he could always kind of get his hands on whatever he wanted, but nonetheless, um, I don't know exactly what kind of print this would have been, but to, to get this effect, I'm sure, you know, there was a pictorialist element to the Mm -hmm. original image, the original negative, but, uh, this is, he's got a a lot of, of interest to the printing technique here is really Mm -hmm. what drives it, drives it home with the texture that it has. So. Feel like there was um oh uh, this this one has uh, a um mm-hmm. it, like very much like an Edward Hopper yeah yeah it does. feel to like just just it, like in terms of style in terms of like the subject matter mm-hmm. um this this could have been you know a car from the 1950s like if you were going to be like extra you know if you had an extra old school car. Yeah, uh, you might have something like that. Um, yeah, but it definitely has a hopper feel. Like even like the lighting, right? You you oftentimes have just like one specific kind of point of light that is you know almost um you know unnaturally bright. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know everything else is just kind of obscured. Everything is a little bit more sad. Everything is a little bit more you know uh, amb- ambiguous, right? And um, mm-hmm. you know, same thing here. Like you're you're wondering about uh, the function 
uh, of that exactly, right? But uh, de definitely when I first saw this, the first thing I, I thought was that uh, Hopper painting of the um, it's the gas station and the road, and you yeah, have the trees. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you have the trees on the side. Uh -huh. um, so let's see. Yeah, this yeah. one here is, is a pretty famous image of his from what I gathered researching before this. And uh, again, I, I don't know that um, this is necessarily any better than the ones we've already looked at, but it's this is hearkening back like a couple of those Stieglitz photos to that more ancient Chinese or Japanese ink type mm -hmm. drawing almost, right? With how, I mean, look how thin those trees are. Um, and maybe they looked just like that in real life, who knows? But yeah, to to inject this kind of mood into it, uh, and maybe he took this near twilight. Uh, it kind of looks like a, a late evening or twilight image to me, just by mm -hmm. default. Could be wrong about that, but nonetheless, he gave it that mood and that atmosphere. Um, in interesting, interesting mm -hmm. choices there. I mean, it's a pretty simple photograph, right? It's a little bit of fence line and some trees, but there, there was. Um, oh, I mean, this one was. Uh also very much uh, processed right but um you know just interesting in, in its own right i'm not sure how staged this was is this uh some mm -hmm. kind of you know yeah. some, some sort of like religious kind of is it like a monastery or some sort of like i'm not sure what yeah this would be um also uh uh very edward hopper like i thought when this i saw one, this yeah yeah yep um yeah I, yeah. Would, I would agree with that yeah I, I mean like just just beyond some of the kind of like photographic techniques i mean this has characterization right of people mm -hmm. right this is um uh that end of itself is, is is well done uh here's what we were looking at at the top um oh this th this was a great mm. uh snapshot yeah um, yeah i mean it I, I, an interesting portrait for that time, I yeah. think. Right? You know, this. this I, I agree. Very, very, very modern. Like you would think this would be like yeah. several decades after it was done. Correct. Yeah. You know, this kind of choosing a young child, but then a moody, you know, framed by her own hands, and all this kind of the the choices made there. Um, yeah, that's. I, don't and, know, and, I, I saw yeah. this one initially looking at his stuff, but that's a, that's a good photograph. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also just very, um, just, just very dominated by, you know, the light all the way at the top, the darkness, uh, uh you know, at the, um, at the bottoms here, mm -hmm. right. Very, very strong contrast, very, um, you know, very, very emphatic at, at trying to get at, like I said earlier, right. Beyond, any any possible reality right you're also trying to get um something underlying that reality right something underpinning it mm -hmm. um but th this in terms of his portraits this is probably my favorite of his that i've seen mm -hmm. and uh there was there was um one let me see was it him no it was some yeah it was someone else um okay so i i, I guess uh, uh we are done with uh robert demma key um unless th there's something else you want to was there like a specific one you wanted to discuss any specific no no I, I think i think that covered it pretty well yeah and uh again just just one of those important figures in the history of photography in terms of popularizing mm -hmm. and uh legitimizing the medium let's let's say that yeah yeah
And I mean, it's crazy. You know, you used to be able to, you used to have to get married to see a photograph like this, right? But now the internet democratized everything, right? <laughs> everything is accessible now. Um, this this is a one I wanted to discuss. Uh, Edward yeah. S- uh, Steichen. Mm-hmm. Um, Very well any- known image of his, yeah. Do, yeah. do you have any uh, any background of his that you think is relevant, or we could just get into the photos otherwise? Yeah, I, I think Steichen's life is is pretty well known and documented. Again, kind of an, an inner circle, uh, great early photographer, someone who mentored a lot of other people, brought brought others along for the ride. Um, but yeah, you know, Steichen, there were a number of different interesting things he did photographically um i do have a monograph of his next to me so i might pull a couple of those out too but um he he really delved into uh it's not particular to this image but uh organic form he was one of the the first to really start to take that kind of to the next level for photography and and we can show some examples of that but yeah this image um is really well known uh, of his Oeuvre. And I think it's one that's interesting because um, he, ah, there's several things going on here. So first of all, you know, choosing to do this at night, again, I, I have to emphasize how long the exposure time would have been on this, you know, just from a technical perspective, um, knowing how slow the speeds generally were of, of the kind of, uh, you know, image making material that was had at that time, even today on film, you know, this would have to be a many second, maybe multi minute exposure, um, or a digital camera too. I mean, wh- whatever, right. But to get it kind of properly exposed, you, you need a long time if it's just as the moon is rising. Um, and so he's, he obviously again would have scouted this. He's going to come there at a certain time. He thinks to himself, I want the, just the very f- top edge of the moon to start appearing over the horizon. So I need to be there and set up early and so on. But then some of the compositional choices here, uh, to use the reflecting pool gives this, you know, very like meditative, but also melancholic, uh, you know, type feel to it. Um, this, this sets a bit of a precedent for someone like an Ansel Adams and so many other landscape photographers later to really zone in on, on things like reflections and the power that that can have in an image. Um, but somehow, and I'm not sure what the story is behind this or someone probably know better than me. He gets a little bit of color in here, right? This blue coloration. I mean, unless this particular version that we that we're looking at, but this is from the Museum of Modern Art, so I have to imagine it looks pretty darn close to the the actual mm-hmm. photograph. So I'm not sure if he did, you know, some post processing to try to draw this blue twilight color out of the sky a bit, but I think that was also unique at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, anything you want to say about this one? Yeah. Um... Uh, this is the, the one that immediately uh, uh, was, was a standout uh, for me. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. We have, um, you know, we, we we have a clearly the the uh, horizon line right where where the moon is is going to be, um, but it's a horizon line that is just kind of probably built up on account of these are just hills, right? It's not like necessarily the most natural horizon line. Uh, we have a curved version of that here, right? With the pool, right? Mm-hmm. Starting here, going back up there. Then we have multiple other ones going the other direction, 
right? Just kind of interfering with that before you get to the actual horizon. So, you know, in terms of composition, that's that's definitely uh, pretty uh, different. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 fact that we don't get to see the tops of the trees, right? They are cut off by the photo, and yet because we have this reflective pool of light, um, we do get to see the tops of most of these trees, or at least half of them being reflected in the pool, right? Uh, so in that way, like he, he's able to avoid superfluous information, mm-hmm. right? He's able to say, um, you know, I, I'm going to end this where it's necessary, right? Because, you know, if, if, if you're thinking like of, of all the ways that this could have been done, um, if he wanted to like show the tops of the trees up uh, there as well as in the pool, well, you'd probably have to cut off this entire bottom, mm-hmm. right? And uh, just, you know, we were talking about earlier, like, you know, imagine if certain things get eliminated from a photograph. Um, I I think there would definitely be a loss if you get uh, rid of like this bottom, you know, third or quarter, whatever it is. Um, Partly because, I mean, like, look, in terms of like just establishing some sort of variety, like in this photo, uh, here you have something that is completely like unreflective and is also very kind of, you know, even ground, doesn't seem to be... You know, too many rocks, too much grass, too much whatever, unlike everything else, right, which has like a lot of stuff going on, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in a weird way, like the stillness, right, that's being reflected in the pool, like, and likely this is still water, that is also just kind of being emphasized by the emptiness, right, at, at the bottom there. Um, so anyway, yeah. just just a lot of like interesting stuff happening uh, in this in this photo. And also just like you 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 see the moon, right? the uh, the the moon rise there, right, and mm-hmm. the blue around it. But here in the bottom, right? again, talk about like no superfluous information. Um, it's sort of you know missing here, right mm-hmm. uh, f- from the bottom, right? That's also an interesting kind of, you know, it's a coincidental thing. I mean, that's just the way that it happened, but that's an interesting uh, thing to have happened, yeah. Yeah, I've got um, a monograph here of Steichen, so I can show just a couple other examples because that was, um, you know, kind of a hallmark of his style, right? This is another famous, very famous image of his of the Brooklyn Bridge, mm-hmm. right? And it's got some of those same elements of, you know, some large empty spaces. And really, uh, you know, if, if you look at it closely, there's not a whole lot of information conveyed other than the dark form of the bridge and a few lights along there. Um, some of his others, like this cityscape, another very famous one of his, the Flatiron Building, right? Um, you know, this one, you've got this branch that intrudes, you've got the building, you've got people down here along the street and some lights. Uh, this one was also after a rain, it looks like, because there's some reflections on the, the sidewalk. So um, even in his portraiture, he had a, a lot of these, like, impressionistic styles you know very much contributing right he's just content with big open black spaces mm-hmm. um and kind of a the, the same way maybe a a painter or draftsman would do would just leave things open um you know this portrait here uh, on on this side right there's just mm-hmm. not a whole lot going on in the detail other than the the face itself and the light that falls on it. So, um, yeah, I mean, his landscapes, this was a a hallmark of, of how he went about it. Here's the garden of the gods from Colorado. It's, 
you know, the clouds probably take center stage and then a couple monolithic shapes. Mm -hmm. And again, mostly, mostly black. I mean, maybe in person on a print of this, you'd see more shadow detail, but, uh, yeah, he, he took and heightened some of the drama of these landscapes with, with that style. Um, anything else you want to say about him for um, the moment? Let me see if I can find. Let me see if there's anything of, on the site other than this one at MoMA. Yeah, because I'll, I'll show a couple examples of his organic form photographs too. Let's see. portraits are really good too yeah a lot of gorgeous portraits now i mean the people he took photographs of right i mean it's jp morgan and conde nast and ricard mm -hmm. strauss i mean he was plugged into artistic and and like high society mm -hmm. um so that gave him access to you know to some of these people here's maybe one final um landscape to look at this was at versailles but again look at, at how little information is really imparted there I, I mm -hmm. know there's a reflection but like again almost entirely black except for that mid-ground white of the building and then some of the gray in the sky um that's just a different take i think than than a lot of people had at the time um yeah i mean he's, he's doing portraitures of presidents right he's got theodore roosevelt and howard taft right so he was he was out and about certainly kind of a, a photographic celebrity uh, of that time Yeah, so let me just show a couple of these like more banal images in a way, but you know, he's one who kind of pushed for anything could make a great photographic subject. It's it's up to the photographer to visualize this, right? So here's a, a seashell mm -hmm. and the way that that spiral and I'm sure the way he lit that, of course, was really conscious choice. Um, he's got things like the backbone and ribs of a sunflower. So there's like the classic sunflower over here, but then this I think is by far the more interesting image, right? Mm -hmm. Where the way that this looks, it, he's making it look like a human form in, in certain ways. Um, just really, really zoomed in macro close-ups of flowers. Mm -hmm. So these were things that he began to do and, and bring to the forefront. You know, these are from the 1920s. So uh, probably some photographers have been working with, with some of those ideas but um you know he really he really took it to the heights so um yeah he's got cityscapes in here plenty of portraits uh shout out to a great poet here carl sandberg and his wife <laughs> took a portrait mm -hmm. of them yeah he, he had a couple of uh sandberg uh photos that i saw mm -hmm. yeah so and he did a fair amount of fashion photography too. And uh, again, pretty much in any way that you could have been well known as an artist in this medium, he, uh, he did it. So a big time figure, no question. Got you, Eugene O'Neill here with a, a very kind of mm -hmm. ominous portrait. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's just surprising how um, how absolutely modern, right? Mm -hmm. So many of these uh, photographers uh, are, right? Uh, just kind of like almost from the beginning. And again, like you, you have to ask yourself, like, to what extent does art uh, regulate itself, generates own rules um, in a way that's just kind of obvious enough to certain, you know, like just certain amount of people, right? It's, it's obvious enough to them where they just kind of pick it up and go with it, right? Mm -hmm. Very quickly, they realize that, you know, these photos are photos, but we could manipulate them and it's okay to do so, right? It's okay to be even you know, more strangely selective in yeah. your discretionary process, right? Because again, what we primarily have is essentially everything that we exclude, right? And everything that we include. This is kind of exactly what the boundaries are for mm -hmm. um, for this since, you know, the, the the thing that's preventing you is just whether or not you, you click a button. Um, yeah. Well, I, after this, I have a, a fan hoe that I wanted to discuss. Yeah, we can jump into Fan Ho. You know, he comes kind of uh, into the mid 20th century. But so now we'll, we'll basically start cranking through probably a number of different 20th century photographers, right? I mean, yeah. maybe we can kick off with his stuff. And then uh, there's quite a few others that are going to get featured here. But yeah, jump on in. I, I, I mean, of this collection on this site, I personally favor the Living Theater. I think that's probably the mm -hmm. best overall collection. But um, the Hong Kong yesterday is is, is solid as well. Uh, but yeah, whatever images you want to pull from, I don't have a monograph of his, so we'll just rely on the screen share here. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I was uh, I was looking at Fan Ho for the first time uh, last night. Um, I, I believe uh, so. He's a Hong Kong uh, photographer who I believe he died in 2016. Yeah, fairly um, so, recent. Yeah, yeah, fairly recent. Um, and, uh, so I had never seen his work before and we just, what immediately struck me was just the fact that pretty much every single fo photograph here, like is, is a great photo that you could just say a lot about, right. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're conceptually interesting. They're interesting for technical reasons there. And a lot of just, just a lot of them just flat out, like just great photos. Um, there's this one life in a slum. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, you 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 showed that great photo of uh, Versailles, right? Where yeah. everything is just kind of you know blackened except for uh, what he thought was relevant. Here you have you know this entire, um, I guess if this is the slum, right? If this is the entrance uh, uh, to it inside further, um, you know the entire thing is blackened. But the fact is, like you you do actually get sufficient information. Mm -hmm. You get the light coming, you know, at, at the, the brick here. So you get to see exactly what the shape is. Yeah. You get to realize that, you know, it's unfinished, like whatever this is leading to, whether it's a, a sewer or an apartment or something, um, you know, exactly what the rest of that texture most likely uh, uh, looks like. Right. So uh, the, the fact that you get a lot of information purely by implication there, you know, I think it's nice. Right. I, I think it's a nice uh, way to kind of, you know, uh, de deal with space. Right. I'm just going to give a little bit while, in fact, giving um, uh, so much else. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the, the light is kind of, you know, I guess sort of uh, unexpected. Right. In terms of this, you know, the, the title is Life in Slum uh, is the light you know, in any way, is it ironic? Is it merely illuminating, 
mm-hmm. right? Um, there, there's a different things that you could that you could say about that. Um, and I mean, just just a, just like this is like the first photo in the collection, and it's already like immediately arresting, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think you you hit on a lot of the key points there. Um, compositionally, here, yeah, and a lot of great choices made. Obviously, the figures are critical. Um, if if there weren't figures in this, it wouldn't be nearly as powerful. Right. Uh, if it was just that doorway, even with that light, as beautiful as it is, as interesting as it can be, uh, the figures are pretty critical to the storytelling here. And from a technical perspective, uh, what I would say is that what he was content to do here, you already talked about just, you know, the, the shafts of light there on that kind of rough hewn wall. But uh, he would have been sitting in this this dark alley or through this passageway waiting for what he wanted. Right. In terms of the right composition with with figures and this time of day and everything. He probably knew all that, that he could maybe get good light at this time of day, but he's content to just expose the negative properly for that bright light opening, right? So he keeps all the detail there and lets almost all the detail drop out of the uh, the passageway. Hence, we get the, the pure mm-hmm. blacks that we do, right? So some photographers might've made a decision to try to illuminate more of that, or, ah, you know, I I want more of that to be exposed such that you could see shadow detail and so on. Uh, But I think he made the perfect choice here to just, Hey, most of this photograph can go completely black. Uh, And and then he's got beautiful exposure there in the the framing of that Mm -hmm. archway. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Here's, I mean, here's the next one. I mean, also just immediately, right? So, well, I guess the three men walking 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just like, you know, uh, you, you've kind of eliminated, you know, everything, you know, natural, right? I mean, just like you've almost, you've almost reduced this to like a level of abstraction, right? It's like you have these lines coming here, you have these diagonals and these triangles, right? You have these like sharp angles, you have an arrow pointing forward, right? This is like some sort of a road, right? You're going to surmise, but you, you, you you know, with the exception of these three figures, right? Um, Probably if you take them away, you won't exactly know, you know, uh, what this is. You won't even have like much of a scale, you're right to compare, compare it to, but um, I, 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 to me, like the most arresting part of this uh, photo is how everything is reduced pretty much to these, like, you know, discrete, you know, levels of abstraction, right? These discrete abstract elements almost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, what about a, a couple of his images out on the water? I think those are some of his very best. Um, yeah, you know, where oh, he's, yeah, fl- yeah, floating family. Yeah, he's presumably in a boat taking Mm -hmm. this uh right and so he gets he gets in a perfect position so he's got several of these from out Mm -hmm. in the harbors around hong kong um and it you know i think this is a nice photograph it's 1957 right so heart of the 20th century this is the type of photograph that encapsulates a lot of the progress in photography up until this point for a few reasons so number one we have atmosphere right in the in the background of this we have bordering on some of that sumato pictorialist style 
with the the fog or the steam or whatever it is that's back there that's kind of shrouding the trees and and what's going on so that's beautiful in its own way and gives a an elegance and an atmosphere to this then in the foreground near to us we've got water we're we're out on the water right so he's got to have some kind of fairly portable camera set up with him um and he does a beautiful job with the the light play and the undulations of this water right so it's it's the perfect amount of dis, like distorted yet still calm. And we're getting the reflection of these, these people in the boat coming toward us. And then, um, you know, to take this at almost water level is a really smart choice. So imagine if he were standing in basically the same height as that person who's guiding that boat, it loses that foreground of the water, which is a key dynamic element here. So um, the, the, you know, the beautiful tones that go on, everything from the whitest whites down in that water to the darkest blacks and like, mm-hmm. the, you know, her, um, his or her, I can't really tell if it's a man or a woman, they're uh, guiding the boat, but like their clothing uh, and then all these tones in between. And just also, it's a documentary photograph, right? There's nothing staged about this. This is just him out in the harbor that day finding it uh, and, and also taking a fairly sharp photograph overall mm-hmm. right I, i'm guessing this would have been a 35 millimeter camera maybe a, a a pretty portable medium format who knows exactly but um anyway you know there's just a a, a lot of wonderful elements to a, a composition like this yeah at that time so yeah um especially from from a distance right these the, these white spots are just uh, uh, just really um uh, distinctive Right. Uh, they're almost like, you know, Moneza water lilies, uh, sort of like floating on a little bit. Um, everything else around, they just kind of, um, it's kind of like m- more obscured. Right. But that's because like, that's just kind of the interplay of, uh, uh of the light. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I agree. This is, uh, another one of, uh, his distinctive ones. Um, here's, here's one that he titled, uh, another dimension. Mm, right and it's yeah. and it's yeah, yeah. and it's just you know let me um you know capture uh, the shadow the light right uh and uh, by making the legs upside down right there is yeah. there is is going to be kind of you know very uh, foreign uh, exotic quality to it right yeah. um like I, h- how would you you know get at something at the level of you know uh almost like sci-fi type of abstraction without doing any kind of like like real editing well i mean here's here's one example right um you 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 could you could always find you know sub quadrants in reality that have that very kind of distinctive uh, uh level of abstraction right um even if it's just kind of like getting a you know like a completely found right it's just a wall right with a road Right, but simply having these three people walking upon it, um, that makes it seem very exotic because everything else is just kind of, you know, just shapes, right? And mm-hmm, suddenly mm-hmm. three three people emerge, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and he yeah. he does a lot of this kind of stuff too, right? Yeah. Um, go to behold man right there with the the figures in the windows, right? Because this is one of his that's always been mm-hmm. uh, mysterious to me. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know how, you know, how this was taken, um, which is, which is good, which is fine. You know, I'm content not to know. Um, I, I don't know if these are 
street signs or like multiple window reflections, it, it seems like it couldn't necessarily be, you know, it's not all different people in windows. I mean, the, the children or the younger male figures, especially that are not just silhouetted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it looks to me like posters or, or something, but presumably this is at night. I don't really know how those are lit or whatever, but you know, this was one that I saw and I was like, ah, oh, it's just nice rhythm, right? This composition, mm-hmm. the, 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 the way that the bounce happens between the different, uh, you know, white zones that then have figures contained within them. And then against this kind of grungy, some information with that grayish tones to the, the wall. But then again, a lot of black on the borders and he just kind of lets it all be framed up by itself in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, really nice, nice image there. Um, do you, I think the one is in here out on the Harbor with like the sun, uh, really shrouded by cloud. And there's like a dark foreboding looking boat in the distance. Keep scrolling down a little bit. There you go. Dying sun. Oh, dying sun. Yeah. Yeah. And women toilers beneath that is beautiful too. But yeah, I mean, this one, uh, caught me the, the first time I ever saw it. Um, maybe we've got a couple of figures on the top of those boats, but you know, this is like taking advantage of your, of your surroundings. I mean, if you just talk about like kind of an ultimate photographic cliche to a certain extent, you like photograph what's around you. Right. But to your point earlier that we talked about, most of it's not worth really taking in, but these boats, like their shapes are just, uh, it's kind of nice for him. Right. Cause these are just mm-hmm. beautiful boats in their own way, but he decides to do this silhouetted frame and the blackness of the clouds up there, um, the way that he exposes properly for the sun so that that's not blown out, you know, that's what's properly exposed. And then he lets the boats fall into complete shadow being backlit and silhouetted against the sky. You know, it's just technically a great choice. Um, really beautiful composition, kind of nice to have three boats, (laughs) you know, like it's, uh, again, a little bit of a photographic cliche, but one of the like rules of composition that you'll hear is photograph in threes or, you know, whatever. And like that tends to be kind of satisfying to the eye. Um, uh, whether that's totally true or not, I, I don't really know. I think you can break that rule plenty and still have great photographs, but this time he's got, you know, the, the, um, way that everything fades out from near to far, you know, large to small with those boats. So it's just, just a nice composition choice and a good title, right? Like, again, he's not every one of his titles lands, but he at least is calling these something somewhat interesting. Mm-hmm. Dying sun is an interesting choice. I mean, the sun's still pretty high in the sky during this photo, right? So like the clouds are what's really obscuring it. It's not about to, to go beyond the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, interesting choice on that one. And then women toilers right beneath that, again, another great example of, of yeah. silhouetting with this, the sun behind, you know, it's, that's just a, a gorgeous image for, a, I mean, a, reasons that should be apparent to anybody that's looking at it right now, you know, like imagine if he chose to expose properly for their faces so that we get all the detail of their bodies and stuff. It's not that that couldn't be a good photograph, but to me, this is just like so powerful. We don't need to see every detail of their, you know, their clothing, their face, everything else. It's, it's really told from the outline with the yokes and the buckets and their hats and all this stuff. I mean, that's just, that's a great picture. And there's another one, like going back to some of the abstraction uh, that he does. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Back back to mother. I mean, here mm-hmm. we have like, you know, this like distance between the two girls crying. Um, 
but like it, interestingly like, you have these like jagged teeth like on the way to the path to the mother and also i mean this this photo is taken so that it would be like very very kind of long across right mm-hmm. so it's almost as if like this is an almost like insurmountable distance in a sense <laughs> yeah right um for a child yeah yeah, yeah com- combined with the, with the teeth and the danger right to to go uh, this far i mean another kind of very very interesting uh, use of abstraction and, and, and space mm-hmm. um let's see yeah. there there were uh, a, a few others that definitely... bamboo man you know bamboo man is is interesting oh, yeah. uh yeah. you know this one here with again it's, it's kind of like a pretty classic straightforward documentary photograph but to choose to take it on the diagonals Mm-hmm. instead of straight ahead you know great choice i mean that that makes this photograph that's pretty simple but yeah um yeah just um, just just smart uh all ch- around there children's paradise uh-huh yeah um you know beautiful so, picture yeah i mean yeah yeah he's so good Pro- you know, probably like, the, in the same in the same yeah. in the same slum right he probably, could have like taken yeah. that um and you know they're kind of like running and like the, the paradise right i mean like you, you have all that light coming there they're mm-hmm. not necessarily like running uh, uh towards it up there right but they're just kind of you know go b- back and forth right they're clearly uh it, in, in enjoying this moment whereas like you know for everyone else that is most likely viewing it right if you could imagine most people in hong kong in 1959 in the position to view this photo right uh the the laundry right is a clue of something else mm-hmm. right these kinds of you know uh totally exposed uh weathered walls right they're a clue as to as to something else right but to everyone else within it this is not a clue to anything other than this is just you know an everyday kind of you know routine uh existence right um here's one you know like little thing but i mean it also stands out right i mean this Mm -hmm. this this this, uh um, duster is very distinctive she has you know the striped suit um you have these like four black stripes going down interplay with the bottom the sides this thing her hair her stripes hers are going uh down as well but the other like back the to back stripes are horizontal, are, are yeah. horizontal yeah yeah um and like also if you, if you want to think of it as also just like a documentary you can you know this is a woman cleaning in hong kong circa uh, 1950 mm-hmm right um yeah it could be let's see oh yeah right here yeah so from hong kong yesterday all kind of like sepia tone um yeah Yeah, this is maybe his most famous picture yeah yeah so uh, i mean like with the way that that he described it right he he said that um he's trying to capture like her you know in her kind of a current state of existence and uh this the shadow right is the future right it's 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 age it's death um i i think but i think he sort of like more specifically characterized it as 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 a, a looming age but you know the, the great thing about this is it doesn't have to be looming age i mean it could simply be uh a woman that's standing lost in thought perhaps mm-hmm. anxious about something that's supposed to come you know tomorrow right or you know something that's about that to happen even sooner um or you know it could be like you know a hundred other possible interpretations right but definitely like i mean with the shadow and given the context of her kind of you know meditative meditative face 
um, there is like perhaps like some sort of negative or perhaps like maybe, you know, ambiguously negative thing that's approaching. Um, or, you, you know, you, you get a little bit of, of that sense, at least I think uh, here, but um, very distinctive, you know, great use again of abstraction, right? He's very, he's very, very good at this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he seems to be able to do so many things in, in different ways. And I mean, and even this, I'm just noticing for the first time how, you know, just how absolutely bright and distinct this part is mm -hmm. going down, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, it's it's as white as those, you know, uh, floating bits of white that he has on, on, on the river photos. Right. Right. Yeah. Which, yeah, again, just to, in a brief technical note, photographically th this is something that's talked about a lot that's difficult to achieve right is your 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 tonal range and um how how to hold all of it together so to go from your whitest brightest whites to your crushed deepest darkest blacks and then you know hold and retain everything in between those two as well um and some you know some photographic setups allow you to do that some you just really have to kind of make a choice Mm -hmm. on which one you want to emphasize um you know in his case here there's nothing that's i mean her dress i suppose is is quite dark but um yeah you know this is it, it's a it's a simple photo but to your point there's there's more underneath the surface right yeah the, the longer the longer you look at it and, and speaking of range i mean a lot of this is all supposed to be the same kind of texture right but here we have a certain quality of white to the wall Right here on this side, it's it's absolutely white, right? And the whitest part of, of, of the photo. Here it's the same wall, but it's a little bit darker, right? Mm -hmm. And here it's even darker than this side. Uh here we get um uh like the ground that is about as as dark as you could get. And the darkest thing is her her dress, right? So again, like it, it is a very good range, right? Mm -hmm. Um and I mean, it, it just it just does so much with just like, just 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 having these shapes aligned. Um, and I mean, the geometry definitely uh, works quite well in that yep. regard. Um, yep. So, yeah, that 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 is definitely a, a great photo. Uh, sim similar idea, right? It's the same kind of boats mm. that are all yep. kind of obscured by by black. Sure. Um, a little yeah. uh, less less arresting in some ways because they're not they're not as totally black as, as those other ones but mm -hmm. um <clears throat> similar kind of a uh, idea yeah um was there anything else specifically in in this oh uh this one um childhood uh -huh. um yeah i mean it looks so it's it's titled a uh, childhood uh, 1959 um and the, the 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 thing like just conceptually what i think is like a really uh, great about this photo is um going back to the title so you have this title you know in the most obvious sense you know it is referring to perhaps like you know her her childhood let's say right um and she's like you know maybe sitting around thinking about things right maybe this is a depiction of uh what she's feeling but th th it also just demands a lot from you know, like subjectivity from the viewer, like viewer interplay, because uh, uh, titling a childhood, like the, the the fact that she just has this kind of, you know, meditative look in her face, this is exactly what you as an adult, you know, who's perhaps able to appreciate that this photo, 
when you think of the word childhood or you think back to your childhood, you, you simply adopt the same kind of meditative state, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's this kind of like odd, you know, bit of equality between you who's kind of like tapping now into your own thoughts, your own memories of these things. Perhaps yeah. you're making comparisons, perhaps you're making contrasts with maybe what her life uh, might have uh, been like uh, at this time. But um, it, it, it immediately like gets the viewer to start doing all of that, right? To start going through a similar kind of process that is implied by the title and by her own look. Right. And I mean, like you have like, you know, this little apron, right. It's kind of, you know, off kilter here, kind of, you know, turning over a little bit. Um, it seems mm-hmm. to be kind of uh, dirty, right. She's like sitting with these uh, maybe potatoes or, or sweet potatoes. Um, yeah. Well, and if, if it were, uh, you know, slightly larger body and, and older face, you know, this could easily be an older person. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Again, to your, to your point on, as an older person, as an adult, you'd look at this and you also can, you know, you can project into her future or you, you wonder, you know, is, will this be where she continues to work forever? You know, is, is that playing in here at all? So yeah, there's, um, there's a lot going on again, you know, like who knows how long he would have had to, to sit here to try to get this picture too, because it's got that very documentary feel. I mean, the frame, the sub framing of the biker right behind her there, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's so difficult, right? Like to freeze this just before it intersects with her left arm. You know, I mean, these are things that photographically, like it doesn't sound like a that big of a deal, but like it, it's just impressive, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, it's it's tough to pull that off. Um, so anyway, it's there's a lot going on there. And I, we probably should move on because I feel like we could talk about Fan Ho for a really long time, but we've got quite a few other yeah. photographers. Just, 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 just one, one uh, uh, last one, maybe two. <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> Journey to Uncertainty. Just you know, taking this, uh, I guess, focusing on the top. Uh, il- I'm not sure if that would naturally elongate it so it co- comes out like this, but I mean, there, there's like some curvature going on in the ground, so maybe there was like some editing after the fact, but... Um, mm-hmm. You know, just like, again, back to the, the abstraction, right? That this could be, you know, this could be a snapshot of some sort of like, you know, post-apocalyptic like anime, you know, that could come out yeah, like this year, right? I mean, you know, this could be like Japanese animation that's trying to get this idea of like uncertainty or, you know, like this kind of like going into this, um, you know, this uh, uh, unclear uh, uh, destination. But uh, I mean, mm-hmm. very, very, very modern. Um, yeah, my... Just real quick, my hunch is that uh, from a technical perspective, he might have just used simply a, a super wide angle, oh, basically uh, fisheye lens to take mm-hmm. this. So he probably was crouched down, um, you know, at, at ground level. Mm-hmm. And then a lens like that could take in that entire frame top to bottom, and it would create this distortion that you see. So yeah. I, um, again, just given that, you know, he didn't have computers to work on the image in any way and do this. Like, I, I think I was probably in camera that he did. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and, and I mean, just this quick one track of fear, right. Mm. Yeah. Um, just in, interesting intersections, uh, perhaps to a Japanese, uh, viewer, this might mean something more, um, not Japanese, uh, uh, to a Chinese viewer, this might uh, mean something like this, whatever's mm-hmm. on that sign, who knows? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, uh, just another interesting one. Yeah. So we could, we could, uh, close out, um, with him here. 
Uh, do you want to uh, take a break? We've been sitting for two and a half hours. Yeah, let's do a break for a few. Yeah. All right. Sounds so let me good. just stop the share. Okay. So yeah, so this was um, uh, Masahisa Fukasi. Um, this was one that I hadn't heard of before either. Um, what, ma what made you want to choose uh, him specifically? Yeah, so a couple of things. I'm fairly new to his photography, at least in terms of a more extended uh, look at it and review of it. Um, I think one of the things is that... Well, I, I think it'll become apparent as we go through the Ravens series that there's a number of great photographs here. Um, but some things just sort of also become iconic, I guess, or they enter the the zeitgeist of it. And his book, Ravens, or The Solitude of Ravens, when he published it, kind of immediately made a big splash in the photography community. I think he had been known, but not extremely well known. And this just really struck a note with a lot of different photographers uh, around the world. So there kind of became a little bit almost of a cult following to, uh, to that work. And to this day, I think it's very, very difficult to find a copy of that book. I don't know if it's been reprinted or there are plans to, to go ahead and print it again. Um, but there's also a little bit of mythology around this project of his, which was that he went through a divorce that was uh, pretty devastating to him, I guess. And he was riding the train in between, maybe it was Tokyo and Kyoto, I, I forget exactly, but he began to notice how many times he was seeing ravens out the window of the train. And I think it just was one of those moments where he thought, this is what I'm going to do a, a, an extended photographic project on is ravens. And um, so a lot of people have interpreted it as symbolic of of himself as kind of a, a middle-aged man who's alone again and therefore the the ravens and their imagery uh, had some appeal to him kind of this dark brooding nature of it but uh yeah and then like i said when we'll maybe look at a couple of his other photographs besides just these um he he had some interesting self-portraits that he took which were kind of humorous and unique uh, he took a lot of, of pictures of cats. He took a lot of pictures of of uh, the women that he loved or was involved with or was married to as well uh, that weren't always particularly flattering. So that was also kind of an interesting uh, trait of his. But anyway, this is by far his best known series here is The Ravens. So, Yeah, uh, one thing that is always interesting to me, we were talking about this before we started recording, um, is, is, is how artists, when they decide to do like a, a series on something, right, or a series of something, um, you know, one of the critical things that you got to do is you have to make sure that each thing is fresh in some way, right? There's like a new dimension, a new layer, right? You don't, you don't want to keep repeating stuff, right? And that's easy, easy to do, obviously, if it's the same subject over and over again. And uh, you notice that like when you have like a great artist that is doing some sort of like a uh, sequence like this, um, when you think about like what makes for a great photo or like a great anything, uh, by, you know, chipping away at the same subject over and over and over again, that definitely like creates uh, a, 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 a quality of you could get closer and closer to the thing that's under under discussion, right? Because what you end up chipping away many times um, is 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 not is not the thing that's that that's necessary, right? I mean, uh, for example, like uh, we we don't need a 
close-up shot of a raven um uh to make it a, a great photo right because we have you know these other ones as well right we have um uh, all kinds of things that we could do but what 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 do they do over and over again specifically right what it, what is that thing that they still have in common right and you're going to be able to find lots of these like little subtleties and commonalities uh, uh over and over again if you're dealing with the same subject mm -hmm. um so uh, i think that's an interesting way to look at uh uh um individual kind of you know uh pieces of a series uh do, do you have anything you want to say about yeah. about this one in the middle um not not necessarily other than uh again it's just kind of my nature to look at a lot of these somewhat technically i don't really know how you make this image if the bird is alive um mm -hmm. maybe it was one that was dead i don't know but to to have a perfectly live raven be able to be silhouetted like this and and photograph it from that close uh, i especially with an all white background so i have not the faintest idea really how he executed this but it's it's kind of an interesting image almost for that reason um but yeah i mean it certainly could be a stand-in for him right it's, it's kind of you get the sense of like a grizzled bird here with mm -hmm. those little you know tufts of of hair above the eyes and, and the chin and then at the back and then the claws that are there um it's kind of interesting and again it says all it really needs to say just with the silhouetted form there rather than uh, exposing for, to actually see the body but yeah this one is maybe the most famous image period if you just google search this mm -hmm. ravens this is probably the one that comes up the most um so a, a beautiful image kind of abstracted right it's not super sharp focused um, it has some of those pictorialist elements that we talked about with other photographers. The most interesting thing to me here <clears throat> is the glowing eyes. So again, something I've never quite understood how he executed this. Um, it, if there was some kind of light that was somehow reflecting their eyes, but then I'm like, how would that be that it wouldn't illuminate the tree more and, and the rest of the scene? Uh, I guess it's possible that he painted them in or in some kind of post-production way on the prints he he did that but i i don't know uh, i can't again really conjecture there are other photographers who might know better than i would how all their eyes are illuminated but that's really the the dynamic element of the image in my opinion yeah makes it extra interesting yeah i, I mean g going back in time to some of the photographers that we looked at uh you could definitely get some of these kind of you know impressionistic uh qualities you know things uh start to obscure uh, uh near the bottom but uh I, I feel like these the you know these eyes are are something new right you probably would not have been able to do this um you know a, a century prior uh to this photo having been uh, taken mm -hmm. um uh, also you know interesting how you have like essentially uh you know you you have the the light at the top right um that's going to be your your de facto horizon uh the uh far enough away like you could probably think that you know these are maybe like a little bit of a uh, ink splotches on uh a tree you know representing leaves or something right mm -hmm. so yeah. um yeah. The, the way that it's uh, huddled together this way like depending on on distance right there's uh there's that kind of like you know i guess like some kind of like illusionary and illusory uh qualities Mm -hmm. uh to uh, this and also you know like just other photos as well right some of them have a, a bit of a similar quality um 
Um, not sure if you have anything else to say about this one in particular. No, I don't think so. Um, keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like how we, you know, discussed, um, you know, Hakusai before, like the, the, the different, the 36 views of Mount Fuji, right. Mm -hmm. You always want to keep things fresh, right. You, you don't want to do a retry. Like if we're saying that this is some sort of like, you know, this is an upfront, you know, um, it could be biographically symbolic. It could be something else, but, um, uh, this, you know, just is, is very, you know, like if you want to say like capturing like a Raven in, in terms of like, it's, it's physicality, whether it's the beak, whether it's the, the texture of the, uh, the hair and the feathers, whether it's, um, uh, the, the claws, right. We have that, this is something else, right. This is kind of like, um, you know, ra these, uh, uh, Ravens coming in, uh, large groups. This is how you would uh, typically find many of them. Um, you know, let's just make this totally impressionistic. And uh, same thing here, right? We're just getting uh, another like single feature. This is now going to be completely against white, right? Um, in in the snow, probably, right? Is what it looks like. Yeah. Why it's white, white, right? It's because of the snow, and this being, you know, like it's it's just such such a nice contrast, especially since. You have just a little bit of the snow here, which is, you know, ironically, like the, the only reason you could really say definitively that it is most likely snow mm -hmm. is because of uh, those little white touches on the bird, right? Yeah, Everywhere exactly. else, it just could be, you know, it, it could be something else, right? That could be like overexposed or something yeah. uh, for that white quality. But um, yeah, and that's an image there that um, it feels filmic to me. It feels mm -hmm. cinematic. It feels like uh, if there were a, a film where somehow, you know, ravens were involved or even not particularly a large part of it, but they featured in a scene somehow and a character had interacted with them and maybe either finds one dead or had been the one to kill it or who knows, but you could see a director kind of, you know, freezing in for a while on an extended shot of snow blowing past the raven's wing, right? And maybe you hear wind going and that kind of thing. You know, it's a, to some viewers and, and listeners, maybe that sounds like a stretch, but I think the more you would look at it, it, it seems that way to me. It's it's a very simple frame, yet um, there, there's more that you can extrapolate from it. Yeah. Um, yeah, this I, one, I've, I, I don't know that there are any ravens in yeah, it. I, yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, I never understood uh, that. Um, yeah. In fact, I don't know that this is part of that. Actual oh yeah, might not, like, might not be. Yeah. The next image too, this is a famous one of his of like, yeah, like something being blown up over the mm -hmm. a wall or, or something. Uh, maybe this is part of the book and he just did it to like have other dark shapes looming uh, in yeah. a frame to juxtapose with the Ravens. But the next one is also one of the most famous images from, I think, the whole collection, you know, mm -hmm. with this the kind of swarm of them around that um that fence or, or whatever that series of posts is yeah 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 what's the next one is that it, i think this was one where he would have used flash in a blizzard mm -hmm. um you know so he's out at night and there's driving snow and yeah he he used flash to go ahead and get all of that there so kind of a nice juxtaposition where it's you know white against a dark background uh, mimicking the ravens or, or mirroring them in a way. Mm -hmm. um, interesting. Yeah. 
I wonder if this is just like supposed to be a uh, um, a what what is the scientific name for a group of ravens? I don't know actually. Yeah, you know, um, but just a a, a flock of uh, ravens, uh, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and this again, like we you know we want because uh, I mean, like we already have a flock, right? So this like we 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 had this flock, right? What will you do? Same thing here. Like we have like let's call the essence of raven. Well, here we mm-hmm. could have essence of raven. We have a flock here, right? How would that flock look different here, right? What, what are you going to do that's different? What about this like implied flock? Let's say it is true that this is like supposed to capture you know raven motion. This is another flock, right? Again, you know, almost you know uh, purely impressionistic as well, mm-hmm. right? This is how we do it. Um, maybe it's one bird maybe it's multiple birds right but this is like another way of getting at it this is also yeah. another way of like you know how, how do you capture essence of raven well let's let's go back to um the claws right let's go back to the feet like we had in the first photo and let's recreate it this time on the snow right we just keep keep slicing off like little dimensions of of reality right like mm-hmm. different diff- different ways to just look at the same thing yeah um 13 ways of looking at a raven yeah i know i was gonna say when i first came across this series it made me think of that stevens poem yeah and and that that would be an also kind of like instructive kind of thing that viewers could do right i mean um uh, stevens's uh 13 ways of looking at a blackbird also just like you know different angles right and because it's it's poetry right you're able to abstract it even further you're able to you know put images in, in, in implications in, in the head of a, a human being that it's just, you know, very different than photography. Um, you mm-hmm. know, that's also like, if you're just wondering, like, how do you, how do you deal with a series, right? How, how can a series little by little kind of like, uh, um, show something, right. And, and, and is that something really the thing that's truly under discussion? That's another thing, right. I mean, cause, uh, this, this is about Ravens, right. But there, there's, there's clearly, you know, something else going on, right? The, 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 the Raven is just more or less like the plot line, you know, of a novel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is just kind of the plot line, but what's important is some of the other stuff that, that we've discussed. Um, so this is, uh, this is what I have from Fugase. Do you have, uh, anything else you want to talk about with, with his stuff? Um, yeah, real quick. Let me just pull up, um, one or two of his self-portraits. Yeah. Okay. So, like, here's one example of, um, you know, him. So, he did a series where he was in this, this like, hot tub or maybe a pool or something. Mm-hmm. And they're just kind of self-deprecating or, or strange, you know. So, here he's blowing bubbles uh, underneath with a towel over his head, mm-hmm. which is kind of, kind of odd. Um, this one here where he's all the way under the water and you get the reflection of his eyes mm-hmm. staring up above. I mean, yeah, having your eyes open underwater and stuff, uh, just, just really strange and quirky. Um, so again, a very, very modernized version of the self portrait, you know, to, mm-hmm. to do all these, like, it looks like maybe his, his eyes again, reflected in his lips. He's got a bowl on top of his head. So almost like he's some kind of court jester. Um, there's one in particular, yeah, this one here, where he's got like a Sherlock Holmes <laughs> hat on and then he's smoking. Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah, anyway, just um, 
really kind of an interesting interesting character here was another one from that ravens series in the snow mm-hmm. yeah so yeah we can we can move on but uh, that was that was fukasi all right who do we who do we have next i think we've got um well I, I i i had vivian uh mayor next yeah go ahead and, and pull up vivian mayor she you know she she lived her life uh kind of like a bit of a, an eccentric right she was uh uh, she was a, a nanny for most of her life and mm-hmm. on her days off, right. Everybody that she worked for, they would just say like, Oh, she would just kind of go off, uh, walking right in the city or different places, uh, uh, snapping photos. Um, seems like she was also like really into film, uh, really into, uh, uh, uh books, um, had this like quality to her where she could be like very loving uh, to the children. She could also be uh, abusive in some ways. Um, uh, relevant to her photography, however, uh, I, I find it amazing that the, it seems like the vast majority of the photos of hers that were discovered, they were undeveloped, right? So she had just kind of taken them. She didn't develop them. Uh, and they just happened after getting developed, they just happened to mostly be like really, really good or even great photos, right? So uh, like she probably didn't get that much of a kind of, you know, selection process Mm -hmm. um, beforehand, right? She uh, just kind of, you know, went with it, put them into storage and they they turned out to be as good as they were, right? So um, uh, who, who knows to what extent that she maybe threw some stuff out but again you know she she wouldn't have been able to truly inspect them in the way that we're inspecting many of her photographs um while she was alive so yeah uh that, that that's an interesting like little bit of information given her kind of like just absolute consistency right from photo to photo um across her work yeah well and she's um she's interesting in a couple other ways i think First of all, she was not in in any way a technical tinkerer. Mm-hmm. From what we know, she basically photographed with the same camera and the same film stock all the time. So she had a Rolleiflex twin lens reflex camera, which takes these square image, uh, square format shots. So anything that would be cropped differently probably is just done by the editors or whatever. But I think she pretty much just stuck with. Uh, that setup the whole time and knew that camera well and felt like it was portable and kind of sneaky because with that one you you look at it from up above mm-hmm. so she could sort of keep it almost behind her coat right around waist level or or kind of belly button level and then just look down in there and snap a picture if she saw an interesting composition so i think that also uh, for the more candid scenes that she has i'm sure that contributed uh, that you know most likely the the person or or subjects in the photograph had next to no clue. There's some portraits that she's uh, got where it's very clear that she had asked the you know that subject, "Can I take your picture?" And they said yes, and yeah, they, she either did it you know in, just candidly or posed them in some kind of way. But uh, I think a lot of her best shots, it's it's obvious it's just straight documentary right from the street level, and um, you know she. Mm-hmm. She just saw what she saw and she kept documenting it. So, um, 
Uh, with, yeah. with this one here, I feel like uh, it might be, you know, if not her most famous, uh, you know, what one of her uh, most yeah. famous uh, photographs, like you always see these, like uh, this one associated with her, whether it's like books or, you know, documentaries like this often is part of the promotional material. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like w one thing that is especially enjoyable, I think, for many viewers is that uh, uh, um the, the fact that so many of her photos are kind of like character first, yeah. right? This right. is, this is cl clearly emphasizing, you know, this woman, her face, whatever she might be thinking this uh, uh, maybe like, she's kind of like standing. Um, maybe uh, Vivian is in, in, is in some sort of like bus or something. Yeah. Right. Um, which is why I have this like motion going by, but um, you know, th this motion kind of like almost like interrupting or buzzing by uh, this woman, like kind of like adds a little bit to whatever character that you want to uh, build uh, of her in your mind. And that's the thing. I mean, you could like process this in all sorts of kind of directions. Like character does not necessarily mean only one particular thing, right? That I'm thinking or that you're thinking. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff that viewers can imbue here, but there's a lot to like go off of and to help make a lot of that happen, right? I mean, um that that's that would be the important part um maybe we could like run through a couple of these yeah just just keep clicking through and um yeah like you said you know the the character first yeah. nature of, of a number of these is really what drives them home um i think her her staged portraits are strong but these type you know where yeah like mm -hmm. the, you know where it's just that person obviously doesn't know yeah uh, or I shouldn't say obviously, but it seems quite likely they have no clue that she's taking a picture of them. Um, you know, those tend to be her strongest. Yeah, um, I'm not sure who, who these so, people are, but she did do yeah, Kirk, Kirk Douglas, right? Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, interesting. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, I think um, yeah, she just kind of uh, strolled by the the yeah. event and snuck in there for a few photos. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if she was able to sort of like pretend like she was in the press. You know, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, look, I mean, that's a beautiful one there, right? Um, this one? No, the the one right before, right. where you've got the nice sub frame. Yeah, mm -hmm. of you know this this person in the front left. Right, yeah. so they're silhouetted, and then the the people to the right, and then that gentleman in the center is the the main subject. But the the flag blowing and the wind up above him, you know, that's that's a mm -hmm. crowded space. Again, it's a very difficult photograph to get. Yeah, um, certainly if if you're a good photographer and you camp out there long enough, you'll you'll maybe get something. But the fact that he's posed where he's got a little bit of a rest going, uh, you know, he's he's leaning over his own arm there and pensively staring off. You know, it's. Mm -hmm takes a lot to, to have all that come together so mm -hmm. um, so it's a nice picture it is it is interesting how like we have you know two uh like two enclosures right we have the enclosure starting here and then we have this like face in this profile right that's like it's like literally like it's almost an entire half mm -hmm. right in the silhouette despite the fact that no it's not the focus it becomes almost like um you know it it, it, it becomes the frame it becomes the enclosure Right, and then we have only a little bit of this uh, daylight out out there, right? But he's, you know, he, this face does seem to very much be the emphasis. Mm -hmm. um,
Yeah, if we can find, I don't know which portfolio it's in, but a um, couple particular ones. One would be the image of a, a gentleman who had been uh, a clown out on the street or acting as a clown. That's a beautiful picture there too. Mm-hmm. Um, this that one with the legs also has always yeah. stood out to me. Right, you know, it's a, it's an interesting take on portraiture and. Mm-hmm. People, especially um, street photographers, ha- have. I, I'm. She probably wasn't the first person to do this, right? But you, uh, in homage to her, I think. Ever since this photograph became well known, you see a lot more street photographers who take these kind of pictures, where they they look below head and and shoulder level to try to see other defining characteristics of people. And this one's a, a twofer, right? Because we have the birthmark yeah. on that left hand. Uh, you know, person and the the wobbly legs, uh, very very thin legs of the other one, and they're near a trash can or some other kind of bin. You know, whatever. It's it's um, a nice alternative take on a portrait. Yeah, and also, I mean, the the courage to wear very dark socks with a, a low <laughs> like low shoes. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, that that's also like you know one of those like little. A lot, a lot of people simply wouldn't do something like that. Like it's just uh, all these like little characteristics that you could get right from mm-hmm. um, from from watching this kind of thing. Yeah, I think that one's that one's interesting. But the the more, yeah. I mean, again, great sub framing right through this person with a yeah, hand exactly. on their hip, like you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's, uh, and, that's and, and that that is you know just like nicely uh, blurred out, right? Yeah, nice nice choice there. Um, yeah, this one, you know, has always kind of struck me. So I think the reason is because I've never known whether this was uh, staged or, or um, you know, contrived or natural, uh, or, or if he's just in character, right? He's walking around as a sad clown and she snapped that. But I, I've just always thought it's interesting because you can't quite tell if, if he's playing his character or if he's not and he's legitimately, this is just him in that moment as a man but he happens to still have all his makeup on. And so she caught him in this moment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But e- either way, it's just, um, it's one of my favorite portraits of hers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was uh, uh, something that she did. Yeah. So I, this has also spawned a, a whole generation of imitators, right? Yeah. Once her self portraits came out, lots of people you know there have been lots and lots of different takes on self-portraits of course among photographers over the years but mm-hmm. um yeah she's she's got some interesting ones you know this one again i'm like how how does that exactly come together because it's tough you know she would she's in a room where someone's showing her herself in a mirror mm-hmm. but then she also has to get herself in focus but only have her head in there and not have the camera show up in the mirror. She's very content to have the camera appear in, in many of these self-portraits, but this one she didn't. It's again, I've I've tried to do shots like these. They're they're difficult. Mm-hmm. They're tough, they're tough shots to pull off. So mm-hmm. um kudos to her on that. Yeah. So this one's you know one of her more straight ahead yeah. options. I, I don't find that particularly interesting or groundbreaking to be honest with you. But um uh yeah so she 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 calls this self portrait 1970 i think that's interesting about it is uh um you know no like just just bringing a little bit of biography into it although you don't have to you know she would not have been one of the women with these shoes and these purses and dressed mm-hmm. in this way 
you know, sitting uh, on, on this bench, right? Yeah. She calls it self-portrait, but the self-portrait that she's referring to is just this shadow on the side. Yeah, you bottom know, corner. Yeah. Yeah. The the emphasis is clearly, you know, on 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 the women, right? And the only reason why you would uh be that drawn to the shadow for the most part is because of the title, right? And also then to like figure out exactly you know what it what it is. Um yeah. and you know, it just like like speaks to uh it's some kind of like disconnect, right? Even if you don't know anything about her, right? There's definitely like a feeling of of disconnect to this photo. Right, some sort of you know, perhaps even you know, uh, maybe like some kind of like alienation. Yeah. Um, well, and and also keeping in mind, you know, this is one of the hallmarks of of street photography, but the presumed boldness to take this picture. I mean, you know, these ladies. This is back in the mid century. I mean, they didn't have smartphones distracting them or something. I mean, maybe they were reading or chatting amongst themselves. Who knows what? But no matter how you cut it, for her to get this close to them and then compose a photograph and then put her own shadow in the bottom left and then take the picture, you know, who knows what, and, and again, it's a nice choice on her part to cut off the top. Right. So we don't mm -hmm. know how they're reacting to her doing this. Um, that's a nice touch that we just get to speculate about it. But um, yeah, it's, you, you got to have some guts, you know, she was obviously a pretty private person, but she, she had plenty of, like courage when it comes to doing documentary street photography to just go get right near these people yeah um so yeah it is an interesting one um were there any ones in particular that uh you wanted to get at of her self-portraits i mean anything um the the other one that i wanted to try to find i don't know which um of these portfolio pages it would be in so uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, a portrait or it's like from behind of a woman in a white dress and she's, it's at night, she's walking away, kind of stepping over a puddle toward a car. And that's, this reminds me of Van Gogh. I've always thought of Vincent Van Gogh and his, uh, portrait of Dr. Gachet. Yeah. <laughs> with, oh yeah. 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 With, with that particular gentleman. But, um, yeah. And, and part of the reason would just be because it's one of the few, uh, the image I'm speaking of right now is one of her few frames that is pretty different. It's a little bit blurred. It's a little bit abstracted. Um, yeah, oh, so many of these portraits are 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 gorgeous. You know, it's just they're just lovely. They're rich. Mm -hmm. They're just rich pictures. Period. You know, um, part of that's down to the camera and the film, but she she just did a nice job with all these these compositions there's her sneaking herself into it again at the bottom of the frame you know so you see what i mean like you know she went for a really dark sky and kind of some motion blur and it's not super sharp mm -hmm. um but this is a it's just a beautiful photograph uh, as well you know it's the, i think it's one of her other well-known ones and just another example of her um maybe stepping trying to step foot into like higher society or at least document it like that's a pretty fancy looking dress to me at least so maybe this was one of those movie premieres or she she followed or saw someone leaving you know a nice restaurant or a theater or something and decided to try to snap their photo and um just a a different take from her usual so mm. anyway yeah she's I mean, her catalog on that site, you know, her main website is extensive. So I would encourage anybody to go out there and just 
click through most, if not all of those photographs, there's, there's a lot to mine. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of like, also just, you know, like watch the, the documentary, right. That kind of, um, yeah. came about from this like viral set of images that, that they were posted, uh, over a decade ago, um, at this point. Um, yeah. so, uh, I, I also had, a, a this guy. Oh, so Hinoshino. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just he does these like uh, dioramas, right? Um, yeah. And I, I just pulled up the one of New York, and it's just like, right. So this is like um, Lower Manhattan, right? We have the East River, we have the Hudson uh, there in the West. Uh-huh. This is like Central Park here. Yeah. Right. So he just kind of like carved that out, and he seems to just be like taking. Uh, different photos of, of different places, different buildings, right. Uh, uh, editing them, them together. And even like with the, um, there's this, you know, there's this, uh, almost like a Van Gogh quality to the water, right. He has like these like thick discrete units of like, uh, like little photos, right. Stacked on top Mm -hmm. one another. They look like thick, you know, like stacked paint chips essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, so yeah. Here, here's what I'll say about, uh, you know, he stands out to me for a couple reasons. Number one, it's important to say that this is all manual. Mm-hmm. So these are basically sculptures of a sort. He, he blends photography with sculpture or at, at least, you know, massive scale mural making in a way because he gets these huge boards. And what he'll do to create all these dioramas that he's done is go to a city reside there for up to a month maybe two and walk around every single day and he typically ends up with i forget in the interview i watched of him years ago what he said but you know somewhere in the realm of like 15 to twenty thousand photographs of that place and he literally just begins to print all of them out they're all in 35 millimeter film he prints you know the the positives here and then arts and crafts mode for however long that takes to cut them all down. And then he has like a map of the city and and he begins to piece it all together to create kind of this whimsical uh, take on it with a few of the defining characteristics uh, highlighted, like you just mentioned with the river and central park and et cetera. Um, So it's just a monumental task. I've never seen a photographer do anything like this in terms of, how much time and effort it takes to create one of these. Um, and, and his photographs, the individual photographs, if you get really close and look on these, you'll see that there are some, some standouts that would be just nice individual pictures. But for the most part, um, you know, he's, he's one who he benefits from the execution of this grander idea, uh, because this is the, the payoff, right? Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's just an enormous amount of work that goes into these, and I just like him because it's something different, uh, something I've never <laughs> never seen anybody else attempt to pull off. And you couldn't, right? You know, if anyone else tried to do this, it would be so obvious that you're cribbing from him that it, it would basically be plagiarism. So, um, yeah. yeah, I like when he gives you these close in, you know, cut shots of sections, right? But. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting to view uh, his work as perhaps like you know maybe 
some kind of like dead end, right? Like you can't really mm. do what he's mm-hmm. doing without like ripping him off, right? Yeah. Um, you, like it, it's there, there's uh, uh, like I like I would wonder like what would be the next logical step for something this is like a diorama of like a nation state like uh it it, it, it doesn't necessarily you know make make sense um you would have to just take i guess like bits and pieces uh to do your own thing with because yeah this is uh extremely uh distinctive uh in technique oh I, i guess these are supposed to be the um uh the red light district in amsterdam yeah there you go yep so yeah, I mean, some of those are interesting pictures just in their own right, too. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, you know, he's he's one that's just always stood out to me from the first time I saw his work. Be- because of that reason, I, I immediately thought, well, he, A, did something I've never seen anybody else do in photography. Mm-hmm. And B, I, no one else could do this. Um, so to, to truly have carved out his own niche is pretty impressive because it's harder and harder to do. You know, there are so many mm-hmm. photographs taken and so many photographers, but uh, he did succeed in in that on this this project. So, um, how, how large are these uh, canvases? Do you know? Um, in the in the videos I've seen of him com- uh, composing them and putting them together, they would be like close to the size of a wall in a room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're pretty large, um, okay. or maybe maybe like a school blackboard. Mm-hmm. maybe slightly smaller than that but in that range does it does it give dimensions yeah it does so you see right under there toward the top oh so this is um, he put it in millimeters one and a half meters times 1.7 meters so uh okay four so that and, one's a bit yeah, smaller f- four and a half feet by almost six feet mm-hmm yeah so He's got a an interesting little corner of the photographic world carved out for himself, and he does, he's done a lot of these. You know, you see how many cities are yeah. there. Um, so that, I mean, it's just years and years and years of, of work. I I certainly don't have the patience to to sit there and you know when you watch like the time lapse videos. I follow him on Instagram, so like you'll see his time lapse videos of sitting there at a table cutting all these out and then plotting where to put them and and then gluing them down you know it's just a massive uh, labor of love really like you know weaving a tapestry or something like that mm-hmm. um so the 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 next person i have uh Ale- alexia titarenko uh-huh. uh just uh, also have not heard of him prior to doing research for this show and extremely distinctive uh wonderful uh photos um he started in the soviet union and mm-hmm. the earliest ones were from 1985 right so this is like all on the cusp of uh right before the soviet union collapsed right so you sort of get some of the kind of odd logic right just years a few years before the collapse and then you start getting some of this like more uh melancholy darker stuff like city of shadows so yeah um, i think city of shadows is his strongest work yeah. overall as a series but yeah yeah let's l- l- just briefly just like just look at some of these right so this is just more kind of like it's like soviet uh, you could call like iconic 
uh, iconography, right? This is um, mm, yeah, uh, like signs, right? Masaribo, like meat, fish, mm-hmm. um, you know, like like the communist propaganda, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, these look like composite images to me. Yes, where yeah, exactly. He's, he's yeah, he's taking more than one negative and, and printing them, which will. We'll talk about a little a bit more, um, especially when we get to Edmund Teske here in a little bit. But yeah, these they're they're interesting, kind of that fusion of photography and collage. Yeah, some of what he's doing. Yeah, um, yeah, but I I agree that the strongest one is uh, so City of Shadows, right? Nine seventy one mm-hmm. to nine seventy four, right after the collapse, right? Very strange yeah. things start happening. Um, mm-hmm. well, right, like something like this, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So just, um, as you're clicking through like that one there, the railings with the hands, you know, this is probably his, his most famous single image. Um, and for, for those who are photographers, they probably know how this was done, but for anyone who's not, uh, this is just a long time lapse. So he set up his camera in one place, decided on the strong, uh, diagonal element with the railings there to be a the anchor of the composition and then just let dozens and dozens and dozens of uh city goers you know maybe subway this is a subway station or some other crowded place right and um if you do this you know you make an exposure of maybe 10 20 30 40 seconds a minute more uh whatever if there's enough people coming by you get this blur effect where they still show up, but no one's individual features are visible. And then if, if someone had hands, you know, on the railing in one place for long enough, that will also show up on the image. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I mean, this is just a, a really beautiful shot and the, the ghostly hands and everything and uh, perfectly executed, you know, to where not a single individual person is identifiable, but their hands are still there and everything else. So, um yeah. yeah. Uh, it, also, just in terms of like ma- s- making a somewhat political statement without it being political, right? Mm-hmm. Like, really, really nice example of that. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. Um, you know, I do think that uh, Russian cities are kind of very conducive to uh, you know these kinds of comments, these kinds of um, you know, even if it's like small p politics, right? It's just. Uh, they're pretty conducive to that. You have like, you know, the poet Mandelson, that, that uh, poem Leningrad, that kind of, you know, captures the same kind of idea, right? These like ghostly figures, this like, uh, 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 you know, present that, you know, always feels like it seems to be like, uh, you know, like non-existent, like some sort of like recrudescence from the past, right? Mm-hmm. Um and you know this this does that very well like you, you don't have to know though that this is uh a russian city right you you would you would know watching this that this is not you know this is not like a a, a positive appraisal of like whatever life is supposed to be here right um yeah, yeah i mean you 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 get that right away without even having to look at the title um and this this is this is a uh, a a uh, metro station. Um, okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's a similar thing going on here. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, 
also just yeah and that which, that which one had I think on a, a pair of shoes in the bottom left corner it's kind of an interesting touch the one you were just uh, on uh that one this one there oh yeah yeah uh, am i right yeah, yeah so like that's an element that's you know there's so many people walking by and not claiming those shoes so they stay yeah. in the frame you know that's that's another great touch uh on his yeah. part to, to include that in the composition and who knows if one of these people was the one that you know uh lost these shoes mm-hmm. um there's a possibility yeah what a great picture man yeah oh it's good makes me smile makes me smile he's got got some really beautiful stuff yeah and you have like these like even like little bits of like implied propaganda like even the back like you have this it's like mm-hmm. a store it's just a store that says uh soyuz pichats which is just like an amalgamation of the word soviet or union and print right so it's like mm. you know you know like you could have like a print store in america america prints right yeah um yeah. you know s- same kind of like uh uh you know like little like jingoistic kind of like thing going on mm-hmm. um yeah that show real quick that other one in the top right uh into the metro station because that's another i've always loved this image yeah because it's just kind of a different take on the same thing but the the mass of people um you know going in there and, and this time they're dark uh you know mm-hmm. and then the the station is what's kind of bright behind them it's um yeah just ha- it has such an ominous feeling to it and um you know again even just thinking about like executing this out in the world i mean you know he's he's pretty conspicuous he's there with a tripod with a a camera on it and I maybe, you know, if people are just busy enough walking by, they don't really care. And maybe he's not really being noticed, but, um, yeah, it, it, again, it just takes a little bit of doing and courage to just walk right into the middle of that mass of people and post up a tripod and not care if, you know, people knock into you or you disrupt their rhythm or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, um, especially to, you know, to have to plant it there for a longer period of time you're not just walking by with a leica you know like quickly snapping a couple pictures of people's faces and then you vanish into the crowd um so it, it's again similar to the others we've talked about whether it's stieglitz or or whoever um he probably started thinking a, a while before about you know oh this could make a good image and a good series if i just go post up at the station and get a lot of different angles of, of all of these people going by and emotion blur. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, more, you know, even a little bit more dramatic in terms of like the interpersonal, right. You get this like deforming of the faces mm-hmm. and, and the bodies, right. Um, yeah. everything, everything else is like absolutely lucid, right. Yeah. And the only thing that's not lucid are are the people, right? The mm-hmm. structures remain. Um, it's a little bit different. Yeah, I'm trying to. So he's he's kind of shooting through or around a couple people standing closer to him, or they were for a moment. Because when when their features are ghostly like that again, you know, it means they were there for enough time to land on the image, but not long enough to be solid. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Not not quite sure all the technical side of that, but interesting. And, w- and what's the most? W- was this all? Yeah, I guess this is all black and white, no color at all. Um, no, yeah, he in his more recent series, like the Havana Cuba series, and uh, 
a couple of the others he's he does this little light painting touch yeah new mm. york venice where it's it's kind of taking on these gold tones so he keeps it uh you know very kind of luminous black and white and then yeah these these slight hues uh, that he mm. he injects in so I, again, I don't know uh, exactly how he's doing that. If that's a certain printing technique, because I, I, I feel like it's a good idea. Like in terms of like building on some of the, um, you know, uh, like he, you know, did a bunch of like Saint Petersburg photos uh, specifically. Like yeah, this, so he goes this, to Cuba. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- this is like a good way of doing that because I mean, you know, like uh, Cuba is also similarly, um, you know, like very much. Uh, has been uh uh in decline like you don't even have to like adjudicate like the why like i mean it's just it has a similar kind of like twilight quality right to the soviet union right mm-hmm. um and uh here you know you, you but but the thing the, the difference is that you know with like russia versus cuba is like you know ostensibly this is supposed to be like a, a tropical paradise right whereas russia isn't right russia is kind of like metallic it's cold it's dark yeah um and, and here though you get just like the, the hint of the light yeah right uh but it is you know dilapidated you know just all around anyway um you know like this it's kind of like a little bit unsettling right like in the sense that you know there is it's kind of like perhaps like some kind of storm right mm-hmm. looks like a um, wave crashing up against yeah. Yeah. yeah there's also there's also just a lot of moisture like around here so may, maybe it was like uh raining uh at some point but um still you got the same kind of ghostly effect like like you have in the uh the russian photos yeah right yeah. and and uh the, the the tropical backdrop gives it um also like it, it's it's also an ominous quality but it's de- it's definitely it's a different kind of it's almost like an ironic little bit you know ominous quality right i mean you still have the little bit of light yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's beautiful little touch of light there on that and and, and just just the how song. oddly like um like if you look at you know a lot of uh uh the architecture of cuba right and also like the cars in cuba it all has this kind of you know frozen in time Yes. uh 1950s feel you know like we yep. we did our you know revolution in uh what was it? it was 1959 um so you know this is like the snapshot of of reality that uh we're just kind of but everything does age regardless right i mean it all does age it all does crumble it eventually the buildings do look like this eventually the cars do go out of date mm-hmm. right this was 2003 right and yet um you know, this does not look like a, a 2003 event. Right. Yeah, ever since I saw these um, series of his, the, the latest ones, with the way that these are lit or, or printed and some of the the luminous tones he gets, um, I have no clue how anybody would do it, but I've kind of wanted to see someone make a film with this sort of look to it. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's not just a straight ahead, you know, oh yeah, it's a black and white movie that was either shot in, in digital black and white or film black and white. Cause you just, it just doesn't ever look like this, you know, it's got mm-hmm. this, this style he's got going on here just from a, you know, a tonal perspective is, is unique, um, to his work. So yeah, I feel like a, a film could look, you know, really beautiful in this style. 
if it were achievable, it's probably not, but yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just, just think of uh, this, you know, it's almost like this, um, it's like a twisted play on like Spanish castles. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you had this like woman that's like exceptionally old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like racially, right. She's, uh, um, you know, she's not, uh, she's not white. Right. Uh, you had this like, uh, <clears throat> um, what would be the technical, I guess you just call a balcony, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but, but it, it looks like know, it could literally break in half Yeah. You know, at any, at any uh, moment. And the <clears throat> thing that she's holding on to could just like break off at any moment. Um, you know, it's like this, it's like a, it's like a, tw- it's like a twisted, like take on, you know, Moorish castles. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, all, all, um, interesting uh, stuff. Well done. Yeah. Uh, I, I let, let me just check through. Yes. Yeah, so like St. Petersburg, like, uh, this is like pre and, uh, um, well, I guess it's all post-Soviet, but mm-hmm. I guess it's pre and post-Putin as well, given the timeline. Like almost the canal, that famous photo with us, Stalin walking down next to the water, and then um, the 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 guy that he assassinated would was removed from the photo almost like oh. looks like that almost looks like that canal yeah it's almost as if like a, a few like ghosts like coming out of there right coming out of yeah. there uh, uh, sleep um look at look at this one just like the just the bare outline yeah yeah it must have been like the only person that walked by or maybe it's like mm-hmm. two of them it looks like there's like two, two or three people maybe yeah oh that's a good one yeah same thing that figure in the bottom center just barely makes it in but and, and like, get, yeah. given the fact that you know, uh, even if it's not snowing, I mean, things are st- the snow is still windswept. So, mm-hmm. um, the fact that the snow would be moving back and forth, right, creating these streaks uh, across uh, across the photo. Yeah. Um, There's also some like more kind of like direct portraiture. I think that he did. I think it was this one. Um, yeah, like this one, for example yeah right uh she's she she's captured here everyone else is like walking by and as you can see like you know um one of the interesting things about like like doing this kind of technique right with this uh implied uh passage of time and also knowing exactly where the motion was you you, it it does uh, give this kind of cinematic quality in the sense that your brain does start to automatically piece together before and after and the implications of that in a way that you know lots of like other kinds of more standard photographs maybe wouldn't do like for example here you see based on the motion of the people and what's going on that they seem to have carved out this little niche for her Mm -hmm. she's sitting here 
they're walking by, they're not giving her money, right? They're not, right. it says begging woman, right? No. Um, they're not, they're not giving her money. They're not really paying attention to her. Right. And she, you know, by the nature of kind of like who she is, you know, maybe she's making, uh, them ashamed, right. Uh, whenever they, they, they see her, but, um, you know, er, like everything, like a, like a great kind of like wave kind of sucking back from her. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, you get tons of these like before and afters that wouldn't necessarily appear, um, in other situations. Yeah. Well, and going back to, uh, as to our earlier point as well about the differences between photography and painting, this to me is another example, really his whole catalog in terms of these, you know, blurred individuals walking by kind of thing and the ghostly nature is an example of something that photography can accomplish that a, a painting can't in quite the same way. Right. Um, you could certainly have a painter kind of create these effects or make it look approximately the same. But when this is a direct documentary photograph out on the street, but he makes the decision to to do this right with the, the motion blur and time lapse of however many seconds um, and she's completely unchanged. I mean, that's the other thing. She's very sharp. You know, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. She literally didn't move uh, mm-hmm. at all during this photograph. Whereas there were enough other people going by to create the blur. So it, um, there's just so much that can be communicated with that choice of technique that a photograph allows you to go do. And, you know, he planned this and, and set up for it and whatever. But in terms of the execution, it's maybe 30 seconds of time, literal time captured. Uh, and then, you know, it's up to him to go back and print it and do whatever else he wants to do with it. But, um, yeah, it's uh, photography can be very effective for for these kind of ideas yeah um well i, I don't have any other uh, photographers uh if, if you want to discuss someone else let's do that we're also going to do uh um the uh, chris mark and also the once in a time in anatolia winter sleep um mm-hmm. so we, we have been sitting together although this episode so far is in four hours but we've been sitting together for four hours so uh, yeah. up to up to you how you want to divide uh, the rest of that time yeah so let's maybe breeze through a few more photographers we can you know we can go a little bit quicker but there are a few more that i want to highlight um so let's see one would be T- teski has some personal meaning to me because early on when i was really uh, beginning to become more interested in photography I went to the Art Institute of Chicago uh, just by myself one day. This is when I was still living in the Chicago area. And, uh, I, you know, I went down into the photograph, um, photographic gallery. And, of course, there's work from quite a few different photographers down there. But I had never heard of him before. And, uh, you know, one of the images that was hanging up as a print on the wall was one of his. Um, and it just, it just really captured my attention. And it was... Um, it wasn't this exact photo, but it was a similar one to this where it's a composite print, right? So we've got a, a, a portrait done, but then it's, it's juxtaposed or imposed over another background. So I was like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I just hadn't quite seen any technique like that before. Um, so I, I kind of made an effort to learn more about him and, and his style and everything else. So, uh, you know, he basically, uh, lived and worked in Los Angeles for the longest period of his life. Um, kind of a, an eccentric and a recluse. He basically only made enough money off of his photography to, you know, have this really kind of spare 
dilapidated studio and uh, eat a little bit of food every day and buy film for his cameras and chemicals to process it, I guess. So um, prior to that, he had lived in Chicago uh, for some time, but he, I forget exactly the, the way it came about, but eventually he got to know Frank Lloyd Wright. And so uh, one of his commission projects was to photograph some of Wright's buildings that he had made, like Taliesin West out in Arizona. Um, and eventually he also created this like sort of epic of, uh, of Frank Lloyd Wright's life and put together this really large uh, composite print project. I want to try to find it in here and show it as an example. Um, and, and then he also just had some interesting takes and techniques that, again, the, you know, the more I delved into it, I hadn't really seen anyone else do it. So here's the Frank Lloyd Wright, an American portrait is, is what he titled this one over here on the right. So I don't know how well you'd be able to see that. Um, but it's just a really intricate composite print. You know, I mean, there's so many different images individually that he would have taken there. You've got people on the street in Chicago. You've got a portrait of Franklin Wright himself. You've got his falling water building. You've got a blueprint. Um, you've got some ruins, trees, you know, all these things. So he, he put that all together into one, which uh, again is just pretty, pretty compelling and interesting to me. Um, you know, he's, he's got these portraits that he'll go ahead and impose over leaves or, or other kind of natural elements. He did that quite a bit. Um, and probably the, the biggest thing that I found of interest, he, he also got just like a little bit of, um, I don't know if you wouldn't necessarily have to call it avant-garde, but just, you know, interesting split of framing, right? Where the subject mm -hmm. ends up kind of chopped and screwed and remixed a little bit. Um, I don't know if that's a double exposure in the camera or if that's another um, composite print, but he experimented a lot in the dark room. So that, I think that's maybe the main thing I would, uh, encourage people, you know, to seek out his work and kind of look at what he did because he wasn't uh, at all afraid of um, warping things and distorting them and making them weird, right? So he he also took a lot of images that he only then revisited and got inventive with his printing on uh, many years or even decades later. So, um, for example, this image of this gentleman, Jim Sullivan, that he took here, he took in 1939. And he printed that print in the 1970s, right? So mm -hmm. he's he's one that I think is interesting for kind of revisiting your catalog as an artist and thinking how could I how could I find something new um, out of what I've done in the past? But you know, this is a solarization or a Sabatier effect, uh, is also what that's called, where you know his face basically ends up um, you expose that print to light before you actually finish developing it and fixing mm -hmm. it. And so that light comes in and does, you know, different things depending on how aggressive you want to get with it. So later in his career, um, he got very aggressive with it and he made these, you know, basically caustic looking harsh portraits where he would have whatever colors came in. I don't know if he's using different sources of light um, potentially because that can affect things, but he kind of became a master of this, uh, this technique of, you know, having everything just go bluish orange along with the black and white and, you know, having a lot of different elements come in. So there's like a, you know, that male nude study mm -hmm. in front of a, a mono lake in California, which was 
know, kind of this brooding, ominous uh, form in the back. So, uh, you know, he's one that I would encourage people to seek out more of his work. He also uh, knew the doors personally. So he did this promo photo for them in the 70s over like a crackled, dilapidated door mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, so, yeah, just interesting, interesting stuff. I mean, this is a really beautiful portrait here with the body, the head and the body kind of separated by water. Is, is that a self-portrait? No, or, I don't know right. who it's of. It, it just says mineral baths, Big Sur, mm -hmm. California. So not sure who that was, but um, yeah, you know, kind of a lovely yet yeah. odd and somewhat off-putting uh, portrait taken there. So um, yeah, I think Teskey's one that never really got his due all that much. And not mm -hmm. too many people know who he is. And uh, again, he lived in obscurity a fair amount. So uh, probably would have just not been on a ton of people's radar. Um, let's, let's also look real quick at Andre Kertesz because, um, you know, I've been revisiting him and he came a bit before like Cartier-Bresson and Robert Doineau and some of these other really well-known street photographers. So he was Hungarian, but then moved to France in his early 30s and, and basically stayed in Paris for as long as he could and eventually moved to New York City. Um, and so, I mean, Kertesz, like this, this book I've got of his is quite thick. Um, but he, the more I've looked at his work, the more impressed I am with it. He really could do everything. Um, and he, he wasn't one, one of the things I kind of enjoy about him is that he doesn't seem to me to have been a, a hyper-technical photographer. He worked primarily in 35 millimeter film, occasionally would get out, um, you know, a medium format camera for a larger negative. And he also shot some Polaroids in his later years that were a little bit more intimate and, and kind of soft, but, um, you know, he just, he would use like zoom lenses, which in the photography world, a lot of the time, uh, like today on digital cameras, zoom lenses can be hyper sharp and, you know, whatever, but like on older uh, cameras and technology with film, they, it's pretty easy to, to get, you know, like a little bit of a hazier, fuzzier image. It's not tack sharp and this kind of thing. And, um, I just don't think he cared about any of that. He was mm -hmm. interested in finding interesting compositions and, and correct you know, moments to try to expose for and then just taking that image. Um, and so there's that. He also was inventive. So I'll show you this just in a minute, the distortion series that he did where he basically got a couple funhouse mirrors and put his portrait subjects in front of them in all kinds of different arrangements mm -hmm. that was um, odd and just sort of off-putting to people um, at the time, but since has become, you know, really seminal in terms of um, a fresh take on portraiture. So he's, you know, he's got everything from kind of your dead classic documentary street scenes, you know, it's just got someone playing the violin here and a couple children and this kind of thing. There's just an accordionist there. Um, I mean, that's a good, that's a good portrait. Yeah. Still a, a, a perfectly acceptable portrait, but here's one. This is his brother. Um, my brother as a scherzo, which I don't know if that's some kind of nymph or, or dancer or what, but his brother, you know, just silhouetted against the sky with this mm. kind of musical, lyrical pose going on. Um, this one was 
this kind of set the stage for him for the eventual mirror distortions. But I think, you know, this was his, one of his most famous images is this diver in a pool. And to us today, this, you know, this is nothing to be ultra excited about, but people hadn't really seen something like this where there was a figure like distorted by water and it kind of just, uh, people didn't think about it. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't what a photograph was basically, uh, that kind of thing. But again, you know, he's got, I mean, these beautiful portraits, right. This cellist on the street in Hungary. Um, so he's wonderfully capable of, of all of those kinds of things. He also, he was in world war one. He, he fought in the war and he like kind of basically took uh, a glass, small glass plate camera out there and, and documented the war, um, which was, was gutsy of him to do. Um, this one is one of his more famous images. This was through, this is the Pont des Arts, seen through the clock of the Institut de France. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, kind of framed up this whole image where he got the dial coming in as a really strong element there. And then, you know, through the clock leading toward the courtyard. Um, let's see this one. So uh, again, just making interesting choices. So he had a, a glass plate negative here that was ruined, but he decided to just go with it and it ends up being kind of an interesting image, right? He let that hole through the center of it just stay mm -hmm. and he printed it like this the rest of his life. Um, just as a, you know, a dynamic, interesting element to the picture um you know a electrical storm over the eiffel tower mm. so capturing some of these moments let me show you the distortions uh, these portraits are really kind of fascinating um just trying to get to the beginning of it okay so you know it just it starts where there's still a fairly recognizable form mm -hmm going on but the more he played with this and went with it um you know when when you sit and you look at these for a while it's it's really kind of kind of odd and interesting right look how you know hollowed out her hip becomes and the head just right angles off of her shoulder um you know i mean this was 1933 so kind of yeah, I'd have to guess would have had some influence from some of the other maybe painters and modern artists at that time, sculptors, right, who were uh, doing these kind of things. I mean, this one, how bizarre is this? It's just yeah, the same leg all the way across, you know, um, very weird. Um, but he he was very experimental on this and and not afraid to you know just kind of take on the typical idea of a portrait. Mm -hmm. and uh so those were unique to him and then uh lastly would be his aerial shots so especially later in life when he moved to new york um you know he he always talked about how he felt like if you were quote at street level you lose so much so he liked to climb and go up you know as high as he could reasonably get and still snag images um this one was one of his other most well-known lost cloud, New York. Mm. So just one cloud hovering right, yeah. right by that building is a great capture. Uh, let me find, I mentioned him earlier in the context of snow and that forming a composition, another famous one here, arm and ventilator. Mm. 
So it's this person, I guess, either maybe as a repair repairman fixing it, or I don't know what, but let me find a couple of his, um, yeah, snow images. So this is Washington Square in New York City at night. From These are all from his apartment window. So he did a series over many years where he just kept shooting down into Washington Square. Uh, I'll find the most well-known one of those because he did quite a few. He also photographed chairs a lot um, and like silhouetting and that. So here's, here's another one in, of Washington Square with all the tracks the autos circling around. Um, there's one more in particular. Um, oh, here, this is kind of a reminds of that Fan Ho image, Rainy Day, Tokyo, 1968. Yeah. That arrow and all the yeah. business, business people under umbrellas. Um, we spoke of Hopper earlier in the context of, I think that was um, Demashi. This one has always reminded me of Hopper a lot, the balcony, Martinique, mm -hmm. right? With kind of that surreal break of the ocean and then that figure behind the frosted glass. Ugh, there's one more I'm trying to find of his and then maybe I missed it. Um, but at any rate, you know, Kertes is one that my admiration for him has grown the more of his work that I've looked at. So I would, you know, would strongly recommend. Would you say that he's the, the most diverse of uh, photographers that you, you've seen? He's one of the most diverse, uh, in my opinion, yes. So uh, just, you know, unafraid to take on any type of subject or material. Mm -hmm. um, he, he felt mm -hmm. like anything was fair game and he would give it a shot. and. Uh, I think proved successful in just about every, every facet. So um, there's an, you know, for anyone who's interested in like a, a little bit more of a deep dive, uh, there's a video, if you just go on YouTube and type in Andre Kertes, it'd be one of the first um, videos that pops up. It's like a masters of photography documentary from years ago. This would have been like the seventies or eighties or nineties. Um, but all they really did was kind of follow him around for the day and, and ask him some questions and just for some insight into like how a, a photographer thinks about being out in the world, uh, you talked earlier about your plan to go to Montreal and just walk around, right, and, and see yeah. what you see. And, and there's a scene in that like 30-minute segment that's maybe five minutes long where he's got like his long trench coat on and he's got his 35-millimeter camera underneath the trench and he sees this courtyard and he kind of leads the, you know, the person interviewing him over there. And so I was like, you know, I want to be here for a while and, and kind of see what's going on. And then he gets the camera out and he, he just gradually, you know, starts to take a picture, but then he sees that that moment disappears. So he puts it away and he walks and sits on a bench and then he gets back up. And then, you know, once or twice, he actually picks the camera up and takes a shot. And then right, there's this moment where you think that he's about to kind of follow this woman down a corridor and take a picture of her but he kind of decides at the last minute not to, and he never says why, but he doesn't take the picture. And then he turns around and he looks at the camera and he just says, that's it for here. We're done. You know, and, and basically he's like ready to move on. So 
mm-hmm. uh, just interesting to get some insight into, you know, to him, all of a sudden he's like, nope, screw this place. <laughs> like it doesn't have what I'm looking for and I'm going to move on and, and take advantage of a different moment, some other place. Um, so yeah, very, uh, very wonderful photographer. Um, who else? Let's do one or two more and, and then we can, we can go on. Um, how about we do last two? These are, these are more modern. So do you have it on your screen? Uh, I'll get it up in just a second here. Um, Josephine Sacabo and Alex Soth. How about we do, we do both of those. So, um, and maybe like Michael Ackerman, I think I got mm-hmm. a shout out quick. So hold on one sec. Let me get the Josephine's, um, personal website. Okay. So, you know, she's got quite a few different series on here. Um, if you just click on this photography link in the upper left, but, um, you know, she's another one. So kind of similar to Teskey with a lot of this, you know, composite imagery going Mm -hmm. on. And, um, you know, she, I think either was born in and grew up in, or certainly has spent an appreciable amount of time in New Mexico or uh, in Mexico. She now lives and works in New Orleans last I knew. Um, so she has kind of these like sometimes mystical qualities or dreams that she says the, these places that she's lived and worked has, has influenced her. Um, there's a couple in particular that I want to try to find. I forget which exact series, cause she's got quite a few photographs on here. I actually really like her site because it's, it's extensive. Um, even as I'm scrolling through, I mean, people will be able to see kind of what, what she's got going on. Um, but you know, the, the, the richness of her images and she also, um, she talks some in interviews I've seen with her and, and even says so flat out on her site that she's very influenced by poetry. Um, you know, Rilke is a big influence on her and a couple others, uh, maybe moments of being. Yeah. So, you know, some of these, she gets, it's interesting, you know, almost like a cubist style or light cubist style here, where she's got half of, of the face obscured and solarized with the blackened eye and the, the angular aspects to it. You know, I, I don't quite know how, how she's pulling all of that off. Um, Go to the silver gelatin. Maybe this was it. Lost paradise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just, for portraiture, I wanted to show a few of these. Um, so again, just like the, the tonality of her prints and, and the richness of the shots, um, it harkens. I mean, she's alive and working today, and this looks like some of those Steichen, Stieglitz, Julia mm-hmm. Margaret Cameron type images we showed a long time ago right so just to show that alternative process i think she does a lot of platinum palladium printing um and uh, these say silver gelatin prints which uh is another you know classic process that most film photographers use the prints i do technically would be silver gelatin prints because i haven't really experimented with much of anything else to this point right here i mean she's even quoting the first duino elegy right as like a an epigraph for these to work off of. So, um, yeah, I certainly would recommend that, that readers check out more of her work. Um, let me 
let me find Alex Soth because he's another one who you know is alive and working today and is is quite well known. Um, I want to pull him in just because we really haven't looked at any art uh, photographers working in color, and he works in color very beautifully. Um, another one who's been influenced a fair amount by poetry. So like his most recent book and series, I know how furiously your heart is beating. I guess that's a line from Wallace Stevens. Um, so he, he pulls that in and, you know, he's, I think a master of interiors. So, uh, in color, so you'll see, you know, just these, these tones and, and the moments he finds, I mean, just this little bird here, maybe that's a pet parrot or something. Um, but with the books at the window, you know, and it's very sharp, very crisp and clear, all shot on fresh, you know, huge format film, basically. Um, but this portrait, you know, with the gorgeous color going on, and it's obviously through a window. So we get some of these reflections and yet we still see her face, you know, clearly in the center there. Um, yeah, these interiors with the purple and blue tones and these books up in the corner of the room. You know, it's such an odd kind of place for these these books. Um, yeah, some of his stuff is is fairly straight ahead. I think these portraits are they're quite modern, right? This is about as modern as a portrait gets, where it's mm -hmm. it's in beautiful color, it's ultra clear and crisp. It's clearly in a, a modern setting with modern people. But this, you know, this owl taxidermied owl in a bedroom with the the line here maybe that's a telephone line or we don't know and the clothing right multiple mirror images for this woman um kind of a split frame mm -hmm. again with a reflection that sort of distorts what would have otherwise been a dead normal picture this one always struck me i mean just the it kind of turning the banal into something more interesting right so by having her lie down instead of look at us and then the the striping and beautiful color of what are probably like bed sheets from ikea or something and then this this printed blouse she's in but then the cat you know kind of looming up mm. uh behind her so yeah I, I just find i find his color work to be really lovely another one interesting you know shot choosing to frame him so narrowly here with a lot of other things going on with the color so um this one you know kind of frightening and very direct older gentleman with his shirt off you know it's just odd it's kind of making you mm -hmm. making you think a little extra um so that's him and then let's do maybe michael ackerman last try to get up here so ackerman whoops I think is is kind of a a good place to end in a way because uh, he's a recent discovery of mine and if if we juxtapose him with somebody like let's say Ansel Adams who you know took great pride in like yeah there there were artistic and creative choices made but overall you know Ansel basically made like almost perfect pictures in a way mm -hmm. right they're like these really excellently composed razor sharp images of predominantly epic landscapes right and i think if there was one photographer that most people if you had to say name a photographer i think he's one of the first that would come to mind right mm -hmm. um certainly helped popularize the the medium to a huge extent through the 20th century and then you have someone like ackerman who 
he works with like predominantly plastic or toy cameras. He shoots on almost entirely expired film. Um, everything's very warped and distorted and weird. And um, it's almost the antithesis of someone like Adams, right? But they're both photography. And so um, if we look at something like his Half-Life series and his site's sort of interesting, if, if someone goes out to it, you have to kind of scroll to the right here uh, rather than have any dis discrete images. So it almost kind of works like a photo book in that way, which I like. But he does a lot of these close cropped square format portraits, particularly of men. Um, he's Polish originally, and I think quite a few of his portraits are of Polish men or, or people from Eastern European countries. But he'll go for like this, like maximum mm -hmm. grain, right? I mean, this is just, to a lot of people, this might look horrible. Um, but the, the feeling that it invokes is, you know, it's, it's immediate and it's undeniable. It's just a streetscape at night, but the, the choices there technically are contributing to it or like this grained out, you know, double portrait of these two people. Um, this has some of that Titarenko style motion blur to it in a way, right? It, if I had to guess, this would be him moving the camera rather than vice versa. Uh, when he took that shot, he probably moved it in hand. This portrait I've always loved, like this guy's eye through the smoke ring. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, holding it there and staring you down, basically this child through a, maybe a frosted window or we don't really know. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, it's borderline grunge, you know, in a certain sense. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, the way that he goes about these compositions and gives you a little breather every once in a while with something a little bit more kind of normal or, or quote acceptable. And then just like, this reminded me of La Jete so much, <clears throat> Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, this element or elephant, uh, you know, framed with within the frame. And, you know, some of it's just so weird. Like, what is this bird doing? Right. Like, you just don't expect that to be there or this use of of the light from over there. And, the you know, the left hand side of this is hitting his lens in such a way that it's it's basically radiating out. But through this gentleman's eye into these waves of light, it's so interesting, you know, Um so he's he's one to me i think is just a, kind of a beautiful image here of this woman with the, the lights in the background um that shows that like you can distort and warp a photograph a lot you know even if you compare him to someone like a fan ho with really pretty much crisp clear pictures that have very much a character and a feeling of their own uh, he's managing to do that with you know only the bare elements uh bare basics of, of materials and and so on right so um there's that and then i wanted to show just a couple more just his series men right so it's just a grid of these really close cropped kind of kind of difficult portraits mm -hmm. of so many different people you know but um and you can't zoom in on any of these you kind of have to take it all as one piece but um you know certainly a, a classic yet modern feel to a lot of these so um, yeah, I mean, we can stop there on individual photographers. I, I could go and go and go. There's plenty more out there, but uh, hopefully this um, has given people some some new work to look at. Before before we go uh, to uh, the movies, right, which is how we're going to end things, uh, would you want to just uh, briefly go over um, some of your photos as well? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, if you have my site up, you can click you know, on what's yeah, interesting to you and I can... I can give a little bit of commentary. Yeah. 
Here we go. There you go. Okay. Um, so I j- just going through uh, some of these, right? I mean, we we discussed uh, what made for interesting photos to us, like based on the things that we saw, right? We were trying to maybe get into the heads of um, the the individual photographers, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I I just want to know how that plays out like for you, like what, like, so just uh, random, right? Just like the first um, one that uh, I got here. Um, What, like, like, so what, what made you want to do this photo? What were you thinking in terms of framing? Why do you think this was uh, substantial enough and worthwhile to take a photo of, even if it's just like a, let's say like, even if you want to call it like an exercise of some sort, Mm -hmm. um, what exactly uh, was happening here that you wanted to do? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll, um, withhold, you know, certain personal information, but I'll just say that like this, this image is, um, it's quite personal to me for a few different reasons. Um, but mainly this is completely staged. All right. So this is a bowl of oil, olive oil and balsamic vinegar, right? Uh, on top of a comforter. So this was just shot in my apartment and the sunlight coming in through the window. Um, in my old apartment, I had a really like nice expansive picture window. So I'd get nice light a lot of days and it was coming in particularly nicely. And I thought, well, um, you know, I kind of just want to put together a still life of some kind, but I don't I didn't have a table that was nearby, so it couldn't be a tabletop. And I was like, well, it's falling right on my bed right now. So Mm -hmm. um, I guess I'll use that. And so I, you know, I literally just left the comforter how it was when I got out of bed that morning, didn't touch it. So it's got that nice, you know, curvature to it. Um, This was shot after my separation and divorce. So this actually used to be my old bedspread uh, when I was still with my ex-wife. So I, I was, it was the time of my life I hadn't like bought new stuff for myself yet. Right. So I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting though, to leave that there. It's like a relic from this other chapter of my life. And, uh, I was just trying to figure out what could be interesting to put on top of it and juxtapose with it. And, um, so I I went in the kitchen, poured a little bit of olive oil and vinegar into this bowl and brought it over there. And uh, along with a few other objects, right? Like this is kind of the trial and error part of, especially something like a contrived still life you're arranging, you're, you're thinking, you know, what's actually interesting. And by the time you, you know, put the camera up to your eye and you see it in the frame, you can kind of decide. So there were several others prior to this that I was like, you know, I'm not even going to take that picture probably because why waste the film? It's not really worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one with the way that the shadow then fell, you know, from the bowl where there's that nice dark area, uh, you know, half moon crescent moon shape almost behind it, which kind of opposes the, the interior of the bowl which has a little bit of a shadow crescent moon shape on the, you know, the edge where the light is not falling from the window, right? Like all these different elements kind of combined. And I was like, well, there's beautiful tonality. The shapes uh, of the stitching on the bedspread worked well. They're pretty lovely just under themselves. Uh, And it was just, it was just right. You know, it it kind of eventually, I think I took a few frames of this and this was the best of those. And um, it conveyed what I wanted to say and felt kind of fresh compared to just a, a typical dead standard still life, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. Um, yeah. And it's uh, uh, the, 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 
I mean, the, the colors uh, are not the colors. The, um, the 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 tones are pretty good in the sense that you know a lot of the patterning ends up matching. Like, I mean, you have the curvatures in the patterning. You have the curvatures here. Mm -hmm. uh, much of the darkness is similar to the level of darkness. Uh, some of the lighter stuff is also kind of contained uh, within uh, the bowl, and you know, each is kind of like reflecting one another. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think like, you know, uh, in, in all those kinds of like tech, technical respects, like this is, a uh, uh, well done. And, and also again, like go, going back to the idea of photography being limited by, uh, reality, right. In the sense that not all bits of reality are w worth capturing, right. Something had to happen here, right. You, you decided discretionary fashion that, um, we needed an additional element, right. Some kind of bowl or something, something. Right. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you needed to play off of these shadows. Like, so might as well do it in this way. Yeah. I always assumed that this was a, a cup of a coffee, but I guess oh, not. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. Yeah. You could, you could assume that, I suppose. Yeah. D did you uh, dip any bread into this mixture when you were done? Uh, probably. I love olive oil and good vinegar good. and bread. So I, I probably did. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, it didn't and so, go to so, waste. So you, so you have these two that are very uh, close to one another. Yeah, it's a pair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is a good example of uh, to anyone who is a photographer out there or uh, aspiring photographer, uh, just using your surroundings. I mean, this is literally taken inside my office building. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was, I was there at work, I think one morning and I kind of realized like, Hey, you know, the way the light's coming in this time of year, um, you know, th th it's pretty dark up there. Cause this is, you know, toward the, almost toward the ceiling of the building. So I was like, well, if, if there's anything interesting that happens outside the window, I could probably get that properly exposed and then basically just let everything else go dark. Yeah. And so the next day I brought my camera in, uh, early in the morning when I was getting there at first and, there was this bird on the telephone wires outside. And so I snapped it and then kind of kept the camera to my eye and it flew away, you know, right after. And I was able to luckily snap that too. So it's kind of just a nice diptych yeah. um, of a, a fleeting little moment, but you know, nice element with the, the curved metal bar at the base of the window and the palm tree outside and the cross hairs, you know, uh, in the window itself and so on. Yeah, yeah, this definitely has, um, especially side by side. Uh, this definitely has a uh, uh, uh yeah. quality to it, right? In the sense that you could imagine, like you know, the the over voice saying, "And there were birds, mm -hmm. live birds, live right? birds." Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you could see that happening. Uh, I just see some other ones. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, this is like a good little, like, you know, anterior, interior. Mm -hmm. um, right. A, a lot of the, the more kind of like more domestic things, like it's just little, um, uh, like interior quirks. Yeah. Is this a self portrait? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, I mean, that was like a triple mirror actually at a urinal. <laughs> in mm -hmm. a, a restaurant i was at so uh again always have your have your camera with you is that someone next to you or is that something? that's my that's my hand 
is yeah. your hand. Okay. Yep. So it's, yeah, I just, you know, the minute I looked up uh, after I finished peeing, I saw, I was like, oh, it's like, you know, it's an infinite reflection type mirror. Um, might be interesting to, to take a self-portrait. So, you know, I purposely kind of tried to make close to the center of the photograph, this, that split of my camera and my hand, mm-hmm. right, uh, at the corner of those mirrors and then just kind of let it start to fade out uh, and, and chime, you know, one to the next to the next until it totally blurs. So, yeah, this is, this is subtle, right. But it, this is a very nice little frame, mm-hmm. right. Splitting down. And also, you know, the fact that it's not complete down the middle, right. I often, uh, uh, prefer these like slightly off kind of kilter yeah. framing devices simply because, um, you know, anything that is so totally like perfectly centered, even if I, I understand what people have, you know, inclinations for that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, it's a lot harder to, you know, create poetry and ambiguity and this other stuff um, yeah. with like perfect, you know. Um, per- yeah, you have, to, you have to choose quite carefully if you're going to place something dead center. Yeah. yeah. Um, were, there, were there any uh, uh, photos in particular that you that you would want to uh discuss i mean let's just go through yeah um i mean i've i've always oh, yeah, i've always thought this was good which which one? Oh one. yeah yeah this was you know an interior um at a friend's apartment right so it's just condensation on the window and their laundry rack and a couple mm-hmm. plants on the windowsill i mean pretty pretty basic you can see the vague outline of the hills beyond um so yeah i mean um the slightly just above this that lamp right the lamp um then set against the ivy to the left to left oh this that one yeah you know so like again just to show that you can contrive things and i still think they can work right so this was my backyard and obviously the lamp was from inside the house but i'd always thought this lamp was you know it had potential to look interesting if thrown into an odd environment and so uh one day it was you know i just kind of thought well what if i take it and put it against the ivy in the back what would that look like and um so i i just enjoyed the way it framed up and and went for it you know it's got a lot of odd elements to it but um yeah, I mean, I think this, it, it just kind of continuously shows that you can take fresh approaches to to time-honored classics, like something like a still life or an interior. So, I, you know, I called this one an interior, I guess, technically it was taken outside, but mm-hmm. basically just off my deck. Um, but dominated by an interior object. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, if you keep scrolling down on this one, I mean, there's probably a couple others I could call out but this is the bottom yeah it's the bottom um so let's go to um creature scapes you know if if you scroll up and and go there and then maybe i'll highlight one or two of the exteriors to wrap up but yeah so like this first image there right my hand like holding this this prism and just kind of uh i was holding this in my hand one day and the way that it broke up where my fingers landed, um, you know, when I looked at it, I thought it was interesting. But then from there, you have to make some of these technical choices, right? So instead of doing a sharp photo of it, I thought, well, it might look better or more interesting if I go for that, like, 
grainy, a little bit more, um, you know, charcoal drawing almost style pictorialist look to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I experimented. I did a few different versions of this shot, but this one came out the best. And um, I think it's just kind of an interesting, you know, self-portrait of, in a way, I mean, no one would ever know it was my hand, I guess, unless I tell you that. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's just kind of an interesting concept. I, I, the, the plan for me, you know, going forward just personally is I want to keep delving into conceptual photography more because i think there's a lot to be mined there uh there are quite a few you know great conceptual photographers who you know kind of set up different scenes or put things in weird juxtapositions with each other that it still works um i've never been you know super drawn to like street photography and just going out there and doing you know like your your henry cartier brisson type stuff or even kertesh i mean he he resonates with me quite a bit more but um you know, I, I think I can do that kind of work. I just, to this point, I haven't been super drawn to it. So um, if you exit out of this one quick. Um, so like, the, you know, there's one of my eye fractalized there. You know, I've always thought that one was kind of interesting. Um, it shows up real small because it's a super small negative <laughs> um, mm -hmm. from a, a tiny little camera that I have, but you know, just an interesting idea again with that prism. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the bird sequence, if you scroll down a little bit further. So these, these this? birds, no, yeah, keep scrolling down. Yeah, these branches, right? So like these silhouetted branches, this kind of had that Fukase Maybe mm -hmm. he was in the back of my mind at the time, but I, you know, just, yeah, all these crows were up in these trees above uh, in Portland where my girlfriend and I were just visiting. Um, and this particular street corner just had like dozens and dozens of crows. So I snapped a, a series of different compositions of that that uh, I thought were all pretty successful. This one's actually here in California. This is closer to my, my house now. So the tree is almost more the subject on that one because it's got, some beauty to the kind of knotted elements of it but mm -hmm. um yeah this one too right with that the dove basically with all the jagged branch lines i think was was nice framing um so there's all that there and then i mean i've probably shot more landscape than anything to this point um so the in or the exteriors section of the site would have that yeah this was just me in my apartment with some of that tetarenko style ghost thing right yeah um not not completely successful by the way i don't actually love that picture and i i have ideas on how to recreate something like that and execute it better but um it's passable <laughs> you know it it works i guess yeah i remember i remember this one yeah yep i remember you've you highlighted that one uh maybe yeah. in like our first ever episode of yeah of our on, fact, yeah. on stage alone mm -hmm. oh look at this oh my goodness where is this from oh i've never seen that before in my life yeah <laughs> yeah it was a buddha statue at the st louis art museum i believe yeah. it was and, and you and uh we haven't been talking about them but i mean you have some pretty good titles uh for your photos right this one is called now you feel how nothing clings to you 
right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, playing off of some of the kind of, you know, uh, Buddhist um, kind of, you know, implications here, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is a pretty yeah, good that, one. Yeah, that was just recently. It's um, a beach on the East Coast. And just, I mean, I, I literally didn't even stop. Uh, to take that picture. So I, I had yeah. my camera kind of on my hip to the side and I was just walking past those three siblings and, you know, snapped it walking past them. So yeah, yeah. kind of uh, candid. Yes. Yeah, it's and, called tilt, tilted beach, right? It's a good, yeah. um, yeah, you have, you have, uh, you have the horizon line tilted and they're all, you know, different degrees of, uh, tilting here and also some, you know, some of the kind of like more material tilting, right? With the waves, it, it looks mm-hmm. like, um, you know, if, you, if you're just thinking purely in terms of the lines, right? They kind of, they kind of come up, right? They, it has a, gives texture to the tilt. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The only disappointing thing about that image to me, and I didn't really have any choice on the day, is it was a flat, dull gray sky, completely mm-hmm. clouded. Um, so I would have liked to have had a little bit of cloud interest in the sky but you know you got to play the hand you're dealt so um that's that's how it was yeah um yeah that self-portrait there against the window yeah i mean there's plenty there to uh to look at and then yeah the exteriors i I think a few of my landscape shots are, are probably among my strongest stuff i you know, the, the star trails there with that tree with the motion blur. I mean, this is one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken. Um, hopefully it pops up there in a second. So to do this, uh, emotion, like, like what, what exactly do you do? Cause I mean, I've seen this kind of thing before. What do you do to make the stars look that mm-hmm. way? Yeah. So this is just a, a long, long exposure. Uh, I was out shooting with a friend and you put your camera on a tripod you you know you try to get your composition right at dusk or before it goes pitch black and you can't see anything Uh, and then you wait around and as soon as it gets dark enough you open the shutter and uh, i think this was an hour long exposure so Mm -hmm. you know literally the the rotation of the earth (laughs) um you know contributes to the the way that the stars streak across and it was a little bit windy that night so the trees on the upper right there that's why they've got that that slight blur effect to them mm-hmm. um and then yeah this was kind of over a lagoon right so you get the reflection in the water there um yeah 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 um, they're fun to do that they're, they're they're kind of like inevitably beautiful looking pictures mm-hmm. um you just uh the only thing i'm thinking long term is you know you, you can do a series of that right but you you got to find ways to make the compositions fresh and not overuse it maybe um yeah yeah this one this was a good shot yeah i mean this was um it was just these telephone wires it was like a really cold uh i, I say really cold it was a cold California winter morning, meaning it was like 44 degrees outside. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, that's jogging weather. Yeah, just just lovely uh, for, you know, I, I've, I guess I've grown soft now that I've lived here a few years, but no. Um, but yeah, this was like 
almost invisible. Like the, the visibility was really low. It was kind of misting and spitting rain. Um, and these were kind of out in the, the blue haze off the road. And I just pulled over and, and took the shot. So, yeah. Um, there was, I'm not sure if it was uh, in this one, maybe close to the bottom, uh, where you had this kind of, um, you had like some kind of structure, maybe it's streetscapes. Mm -hmm. You like this stuff. Yeah, th this one. Uh, this one was good. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember this. Yeah. One. So this was. Uh, uh, maybe a little bit Vivian Meyer inspired. It's just using a lot of reflections, right? So I, um, you know, I took the shot into a restaurant that was closed down for the evening. It had rained, right? So, uh, you know, talking about just kind of interesting things and the way light can work. So the street had this nice, you know, blue glow off of the laundry, laundromat across the street. And I was literally just, you know, kind of walking around at night, scouting photos and, um, this popped into my peripheral vision. I noticed the reflection on the, the restaurant window. And since the restaurant was closed, there's no one in there. It kind of also made it a little eerie and interesting. So yeah, mm -hmm. just kind of took a minute to frame up and wait for a car to drive by and snap the shot. Where was the wood that I'm thinking of? Um, oh yeah, here. Yeah, this one, flammable gas. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, this is near where I live in, here in town. Um, there's this business that it's basically like, you know, a, a gas and and uh, fuel supply company. So mm -hmm. there's a couple of these like really old, presumably still in use. I mean, it's on their property, and uh, I don't know, um, but there, yeah, there's like super weathered giant spheres of propane. <laughs> so. Yeah. And and you titled yeah. this one "Empty Threat," right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Under the assumption uh, that uh, the flammable gas has already been depleted, right? Um, at some point. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, uh, good uh, uh, good photos. Uh, you know, it's always useful to have uh, after discussing all these things, uh, other people's work, right? Well, you know, what exactly are you thinking, right? What what are your values here what, what are your uh, uh points of view right going mm -hmm. into this um this is all i'm sure useful i guess anybody like that's interested in photography right hearing this kind of stuff like i feel like it could um sort of you know uh, uh t t tip them you know like if you imagine like a boundary before people kind of like figure out like what it is like they, they should do yeah. uh like these kinds of comments and conversations uh might tip uh, a few people over into knowing uh, what it is that they must do. And of course, like that doesn't mean um, it, it anyway has to even resemble uh, what you're doing, but just the, everybody needs a thought process. This thought process needs to make sense. Uh, the things that they do needs to be in some way, um, you know, uh, justifiable, like within the framework of the art. So yeah. um Anyway, uh, that covers that. Um, we can now get to this uh, film, uh, Chris Marker, uh, 1962. Uh, mm -hmm. 
the the English the English translation is the jetty, right? Referring to um, well, the word jetty, right? Like means a, a couple of things. Like in the context of the movie, it's referring to an airplane jetty, which is like a place where you would do uh, the onboarding. You could have a, 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 a jetty, meaning some some kind of bridge type structure, right? To get uh-huh. to one place to the next, it could be you know usually like uh, uh, you know islands and water that kind of thing. Um, it could also have a, a metaphorical meaning, right? I mean, this movie has a uh, um, you know the, the, this idea of like entering into something, right? To to uh-huh. some kind of uh, place. It could be forbidden. It could be something else, right? But this, this idea of like a, a passageway into something else, yeah. right? Connect connecting you right here, you know, perceptions uh, connecting you to, you know, perhaps ever more, you know, fantastical thoughts. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the, this, this movie, uh, what makes it unique is it's about, I think it's like 27, 28 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it's basically, uh, for the most part, a series of still images, right? So these are photographs and they are placed in sequence so that they do end up forming a kind of movie, right? It's not like a stop motion kind of thing for the most part. Uh, there's like enough time elapsed between shots where there's, you know, a significant amount of motion that sometimes passes, but clearly sequential, you get lots of times like different um, uh, elements being captured from shot to shot, even if it's like of the same subject. So yeah. we earlier on, we we mentioned uh, series and how artists uh, could could deal with the same subject again and again without becoming boring. Uh, that's obviously a lot easier to do in the context of a film, right? Because uh, somebody uh, like the viewer always expects to get, in a sense, like multiple little angles of like a certain subject or an idea, right? So this is like these d- d- discrete individual units, like making up uh, um, uh, the film. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so so the, the, the idea behind it is uh, uh, a... a uh, boy right he appears on this uh, airplane jetty uh he is um he has this like memory that he keeps returning to his, his entire life again and again and he can't quite put his finger on what it is um there's a a woman that he remembers and there's perhaps some other things that, that he re- remembers um and soon after that there is this kind of like world war three situation it seems implied that there's nuclear fallout so everybody goes to live underground and uh this new kind of hierarchy i guess of like the new power structure uh uh, decides on various experiments to send people back into the past um back uh, and also uh, at some point into the future so to get some kind of technology to deal with their present state right yeah um and uh one man is selected to do this uh because he has this uh attachment right to this one image from his past um and it is it is this image that we see in front of us um and uh, uh eventually he uh goes through these experiments he falls in love with this uh, woman he wants to stay there he asks the people from the future that he meets um, I'm going to bring this back to the present, but please send me back so I could essentially live my life with this woman. He gets sent back here, but um, it turns out that he is 
his own memory that he is so fixated upon, right? Because um, he notices uh, this man at the end, right? That was mm -hmm. sent from the past or rather sent at that point from the future to kill him, right? Um, yeah. and, that's the, and that's the man that is falling uh, on, on the jetty, right? So it's, it's this kind of loop, right? That kind of uh, starts where it where it started right so that's kind of the conceit of the film and the way that it does this is uh the way the way that i described and one thing i'll just point out is um you know so many of these would be like great you know photographic shots outside of the context of a movie right mm -hmm. um yeah like that would be a very strong image gallery unto itself yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly um <laughs> you know, like, like, like something like this, right? I mean, this is, even if you want to call this like, oh, this is, you know, like just mostly documentary style stuff. I mean, there, there's still, you know, a lot that you could talk about, right? This is still distinctive. Um, you have, you know, like the, the portrait that we're seeing, something like this, right? There is like a, a bit of a naturalness uh, to it, right? I said earlier, that's something that is too obviously and overly staged by not work. This is, you know, something that you could imagine, um, you know, like a celebrity photographer taking a photo of, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, the first lady getting on board, right? Air Force One or like whatever. Um, you could imagine some kind of context like that. You have these uh, interiors, right? When you go underground in the film um, where it's, you know, it's kind of like it's, it's, it's forbidding, right? It's supposed to be its own kind of like uh, a society unto itself. Um, and and you know like th there's a lot of like uh, uh myth making and, and world building going on uh in the film despite it being so short right it still uh, does that a lot right like like shots like this right, right. this is yeah. like one of the one of the first i believe uh when you're uh, told uh where the action is going towards and you know as a portrait i mean this would be a great portrait right for, I mean, for many uh, different reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, like we were talking about like different uh, tonal variety, right? We have a uh, light, middle, dark, the darkest being the shirt, the face having kind of elements of all. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so like always uh, lots of stuff that can, can be uh, discussed. Um, and here here's uh, the one photo in the movie that has that uh, she's uh, this uh, like you're tempted to say like this because the way that the movie presents it is um, the, the protagonist has a memory of this woman right but th th this cannot actually be you know his memory of this woman because he's never seen her right like he's mm -hmm. you know, as a child like he could not have seen her these are not the context under which she would appear. It's like she's supposed to be appearing in the context of the airplane jetty. But um, in this image, uh, you see her blinking for, I think it's like five or six seconds, right? So it's like uh, yeah. the only the only time that's like really continuous. I think you mentioned something about like some other ones uh, having kind of like a little bit of a footage effect as well. Um, and uh, that that might be true too. Here's the uh, famous scene with the couple, right? They kind of like sort of become a couple at this point. And they are visiting this like, I guess it's the equivalent of uh, New York's Museum of Natural History with lots of yeah. animals that are kind of either animal models or they're stuffed. And uh, it's, it's a really great effect because 
here they are kind of like trying to build on this budding relationship, uh, I guess, that they got going on. Um, but, you know, they're essentially frozen time. You, you know that they are because of the context of the film, like, you know, where they are in the film, you know what their function is, but also just, you know, technically, right? Obviously, these are all photographs are frozen in time that way. But um, the animals are kind of even more frozen right they kind of like mimic what the human beings are doing or mm -hmm. perhaps the human beings are mimicking what the animals are doing right because th they have been frozen in time for um thousands of years right if not longer yeah so it's it's a really nice like confluence of factors right that creates like a new kind of level of you know texture and ambiguity um uh in in the movie um uh, uh well anyway th i guess that's my introduction to legetti i'm not sure if you have uh like what what else you want to uh, say about it because i mean we have lots of notes there's actually a lot that we could say about it yeah well i i have a couple things so first the uh, the the style where like you said earlier each individual still frame is um is focused on for a few seconds at a time. So you do get a chance to take that in as the viewer. Uh, it, it is not mm -hmm. stop motion, it is not flying by, it, it doesn't linger for very long, but you are able to fully take in what's on the screen with each new frame. And uh, like you said, it does generally move along in a, a pretty straight ahead narrative way. Uh, the, the, the confusion or any sense of uh, where exactly are we in time comes more from the the narrative and the storyline and the mm -hmm. voiceover, right? So that's another important thing. The the drive, in terms of us knowing what's actually going on, is the voiceover narration, which is ever present throughout. It's very spare yet strong and poetic. Uh, you had a few lines that you pulled out from it specifically, uh, as did I. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, like, for example, um, time builds itself painlessly around them mm -hmm. uh, is, is one line when the two of them are together at a park and um, she's asking him something about, you know, how, how is he still there or, or how does he keep coming back? And the, the line that the narrator says is just, he invents an explanation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's, so it's just little like strong short sharp lines like this uh that make make the movie they really elevate it because you had asked me in your show notes if there was no voiceover would this still be a, a good or a great film would it work and potentially uh, there's still enough there that maybe it could tell a story again if you considered it almost like a photo book that's being showed to you in a slideshow you could still say, oh, that's that's an interesting film. I, I'm getting a sense of what's going on. It seems dystopian. It, it seems it seems odd and like we're moving back and forth in time. And you'd probably figure some of that out. But it's really the combination of the two uh, that, that makes it so powerful. Um, to your point that, yeah, the, the images are very strong all by themselves. Uh, I think one other reason maybe i was so drawn to michael ackerman's work who we just talked about a few minutes ago as a, a solo photographer is uh, when you watch this film and please watch it if you haven't watched it already again it only takes 30 minutes of your time and you get a, a great film um the the 
images, it's much more so when you see it on a larger screen than, uh, than what shows up here as Alex is clicking through the image gallery is a lot of the frames are dramatically um, in contrast, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a good example, right? It's complete pitch black and then a little bit of white light that's showing on some faces or uh, it's, it's high contrast in terms of the film that it's shot on. It's pretty grainy and almost, you know, destroyed and borderline grunge. And again, that's a nice touch because it contributes to the feeling of this post-apocalyptic place that we're in. But um, the individual framing, especially of the, the portraiture, is really wonderful. And, and there's some of the uh, weird ones, right, with like the doctors when they've got those goggles on that are so strange looking and off-putting. And, um, and then there's the, the expressive ones and emotional ones of like the lead actors. Mm -hmm. And so uh, all that put, goes together really well, that one in the bottom middle where he's been shot uh, out on the, the jetty as he's trying to run and, and finally be with this woman forever. I, this is this shot um, that's often used as promo for the film, period. And it communicates a lot all by itself, right? If you didn't know anything else about this film, if this was the, the movie poster or the cover of the DVD, you'd be thinking, okay, in some way, this is sort of a, a, a dramatic potentially anguished film, you know, what's going on with, with this guy here. Um, and so by the time that we get to this frame toward the end of the film, it's, it's a really excellent, you know, close to final image and, uh, the, the expansive sky behind him and this promise of, uh, a, a good, even if technically untrue artificial life that he could have had. And it, it disappears, uh, on this jetty. So anyway, um, just, just a really wonderfully executed concept and certainly, uh, worth anybody's time. The, if, yeah, I mean, even if you could read like a transcript of the voiceover narration, it reads like a really good short story or something. Yeah. Um, um oh, you I have just, it there. Yeah. Just, okay. just get, give people a sense, right? So this is the story of a man marked by an image from his childhood, the violent scene that upsets him and whose meaning he was to grasp only years later happened on the main jetty at Orly, the pa Paris airport, sometime before the outbreak of World War III. Um, so it, it's, it, it's, just, it's just very poetic, right? There's just like one part, right, where uh, after they start doing the experiments on him to uh, travel in between, you know, different points in time, um it's like they they begin again uh the man doesn't die nor does he go mad he suffers they continue on the 10th day images begin to ooze like confessions mm -hmm. a peacetime morning a peacetime bedroom a real bedroom real children real birds real cats real graves and i mean and this is just like an example of great script writing because i mean like even even just like a you know per, like just imagine what it's saying um we have this like build up right of it's everything is peace 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 right because it's a state of war in the present time and then we go from peace to real right a real bedroom 
real children. These are all supposed to be positives, right? Real as opposed to the artificiality of perception or of memory or however you want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But then, then we get like from real birds, real cats, then to real graves. Like even the reality of death is something that is welcome to him, right? Mm -hmm. After uh, everything that he's kind of subjected to. And um, you don't even have to say all that much about the experiments, right? Other than, you know, directly stating he suffered, right? Images oozing like confessions. This is another kind of like tonality, right? And then uh, the relief that he feels in finally seeing real graves, like real death, because, you know, suspended animation seems to not be preferable to that. Um, so uh, it, it, another like fa uh, favorite scene of mine here, um, let me just look up the word. Um, so a, a girl who could be the one who he seeks. He passes her in the jetty. He smiles at him from an automobile. Other images appear, merge in that museum, which is perhaps uh, that of his memory. So um, th this, this idea of like this museum of, of memory and perception, uh, we get a, a, a bunch, like when the experiments are happening, we get a bunch of images that look like this, right? Mm -hmm. We have images that look like this, like that. And these are supposed to be like, you know, Roman or like Romanesque or like whatever statues, like some of them are crumbling. You look, it looks like we're getting pieces of, you know, uh, the kinds of stuff that we could find in, in museums today. And the way that it's characterized is um, like, it, it's just like these ruined artifacts right that it, it's it's just it's just like a good metaphor for not only memory right but but specifically to uh uh perceptions that get kind of like rearranged right because you keep you always do stuff to memory right and you always do something with your perceptions you build upon them you you allow them to unfold into fantasy right um there, there's a lot of stuff that happens in between and you have this like kind of like, you know, center kind of um, a sequence with, the, with these pictures that really capture the logic of, of how all of that uh, goes and how it works, um, which was, uh, which was uh, quite not nice. And nothing that I would say is like, even if these actors were like mediocre actors, uh, I think it probably wouldn't have mattered as long as you had enough time to take enough photos. Because uh -huh. I mean, uh, even with a mediocre actor, you will eventually have kind of like very naturalistic expressions and moments to be captured, even if they're not like even, you know, uh, like working on the movie, even they're just kind of like talking to one another or like whatever. Um, you'll find you'll capture these kinds of moments. And in fact, I'm sure as this was going on, like a lot of these photos were not taken in the stage sense of like, okay, now I want you to do this or that because this is going to be this or that part of the, the movie, right? They could have just been like sort of preparing or standing around and boom, that's it. That's the yeah. scene. I got it. Um, and then of course, other ones clearly are, you know, probably going to be like kind of, you know, more staged, you know, you have like more things going on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I feel like even with mediocre actors, uh, with a good enough photographer or director, you would have had you know, uh, like stuff like this that falls out purely by happenstance because, you know, naturalism is just, you know, it's just what human beings are, right? I mean, you would be able to get uh, 
added and also the undercurrents of this naturalism, you know, simply with like enough kind of brute force time. Right. Um, so, yeah. uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I think that's pretty much what we wanted to talk about. I think it just shows that great, great photographs can work and it, it almost in a way does highlight how photography is still the foundation of cinematography and and the way that different directors develop a character to the way they they do their films but um yeah i'm just looking at my notes real quick to see if there was anything else but i i think that's pretty much it yeah that um you mentioned earlier what I had said in my notes, which it, it's very subtle, but other than her blinking for those few seconds, there occasionally is like a tiny bit of motion in the frame. And mm -hmm. that's, it's not in any way the, the, the film rolling. It's just uh, maybe some, you know, some shake in the film, the way they put it together or mm -hmm. um, who knows what, but yeah, I mean, basically it's, it's all still frames. Uh, also, should just be said briefly, really the only music in the movie is this really dramatic chorus um, that's very, uh, you know, it sounds like of, of a wartime <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of, uh, or, or like it's probably, I should, I guess, look up exactly what piece it is, but it's probably pulled from like, you know, a passion uh, symphony or something like that, right? It's it's very large and grand and dramatic, uh, but that also is a nice choice on on Marker's part. A because it does contribute to the mood of of this post apocalyptic world, but it also just works well when juxtaposed like that. It's for the opening credits, and that plays in the background with this chorus like belting out this song and. Uh, really all we're looking at is a picture of an airport, <laughs> you know, like it would be kind of banal. Um, it's probably one of the weaker frames in the whole film, like all by itself, you know, but the credits roll and there's a frame of the airport. It's that first one right there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, what is, there's nothing really to write home. It's a fine picture, yeah. I guess. But, like, it, but it, it, yeah, even so though, like it, it works in the context of like, I mean, one of the narrative tricks, right. Is like, you're sort of like made to forget the initial, like if you read like like Dan Schneider's review of this movie, like he makes the point that, um, you know, uh, you're sort of made to forget what happens uh, uh, at the beginning uh, versus connecting it to the end, right? Like it's, it's yeah. supposed to uh, surprise you at the end. And, you know, starting off with um, just kind of like, uh, if you want to call it banal or just like purely documentary style shot, uh, that kind of sets that for you, right? Um, it kind of like, like you build off of that concept, like into the rest, right? Um, yeah. So, anyway, uh, after this, uh, you you want to do Anatolia, um, Ceylon, uh, winter sleep. Yeah. yeah, let's let's talk about Ceylon, and, and then we can kind of wrap up. I mean, um, yeah, I, I think that um, Ceylon is is interesting to use here as as a way to kind of round out the show because uh in, in his earliest days and if you go to his uh personal website you can see his uh straight 
photographic work. So um, he did do a good amount of, uh, of photography of different kinds. You know, some of it's conceptual, some of it's um, documentary style, uh, some of it's just kind of uh, unique portraiture. Um, and then he's got this series he did on his father. And so um, he obviously is bringing a trained photographer's eye to to his films. Now, uh, of course, in any film, we've got to give plenty of credit as well to the, the cinematographer and, and director of photography and that whole team, right? It takes uh, kind of a village to make a movie, but um, certainly he's he's there with his vision of how it should go. And his ability, you'd see this in his uh, still photographs too, his ability to go um, from the, yeah, here you go right away, like, you know, the intimate to the, the pan out and the epic. So interiors to exteriors, close-up shots to wide angle shots of a couple people in a room together. Um, there's a lot going on. I mean, winter sleep, especially for me, uh, since I watched it so recently, it, it's all there on display. And he's, he's very, very good at moving the narrative of the film along through the, the choices made in terms of the framing, the cinematography. Um, there's, yeah, I could go on and on, I guess, but, uh, basically, you know, the, the naturalism that's on display, uh, you know, through, through the camera lens really comes through in terms of heightening our experience of the film. And, uh, he's also one that, that will linger on a shot for a while, right? Like for example, the, the final frame of winter sleep is just a very very slow pan out of the hotel framed in the the cappadocian hills right mm -hmm. and, and like the the kind of otherworldly uh, scene that that whole place is built into while it's snowing pretty heavily and uh it's a great it's a great way to drive the, the film home at the end so um I think that's that's maybe what I've got in terms of of introduction. I I just I find his his cinematography and his directorial style um, very visually appealing and beautiful. Uh, at least in Winter Sleep, uh, there isn't anything that you would call super experimental or avant garde. Uh, there, it's pretty straight ahead. It's just kind of a choice of what sort of camera angle to take and uh yeah you know wide angle versus close crop intimate angle at any given time but um all the lighting is gorgeous the interiors even though they're supposed to be kind of you know maybe ranging from poor to middle class to in Aiden's case and Niall's case fairly wealthy people um for that part of the world you know that all the interiors are beautiful the way the lighting's done uh the way objects are arranged it's almost like he puts together still life shots behind the characters uh, in some of the interiors with how how it's all arranged so um i'm rambling now i mean that's enough by way of introduction <laughs> what, what do you have to say about it um well i what i recently saw was that i actually have uh, once upon a time in anatolia on on blu-ray i actually saw it for the first time with uh keith uh, Jackowicz, uh, back when he first, uh, visited me, um, a few, uh, years back. Um, and it, you know, it's one of the, like most films obviously don't need a Blu-ray release. 
right? It's just kind of like bullshit. Like, why why do you need to like uh, have you know like a, a high crisp detail for the vast majority of movies? But you know, as you point out, um, these elements are just so important to the kind of like the totality of uh, Chelan's uh, films that, uh, especially something like Anatolia. Where you have ton like like what what are the most um, kind of like memorable scenes? And I think it might be at this point the most famous one. It's like I think it starts uh, it begins around this point that you see in front of you, where um, you have a, a doctor and you have um, uh, uh, one of the investigators. They 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 start talking, mm-hmm. and you're you're constantly given like it's it's you know mo- a lot of it takes place during nighttime. Right. So the only places where you see tons of light, it's coming from the investigators and their cars. Right. You see it against the uh, you you see it against the tree. You see it against uh, uh, grass that is either, you know, yellow or perhaps uh, uh, would have been green if it wasn't for the yellow of, of the light coming from the cars. And it starts creating this like almost. Um, well, first of all, the title, right? Once the Planet Time in Anatolia, right? There's like a fairy tale quality uh, to it. And the kind of, you know, irreality that this sort of lighting does um, lends itself to kind of like some of the more kind of like philosophical inquiry that it does. So like when the the, the most famous scene being like the, the monologue that um, uh, one of the characters uh, delivers, uh, where the title of the, the film is is stated explicitly, um, you don't even know necessarily if all of this is being spoken, if some of it is being thought, right? Because uh, at some point uh, you pan over to the characters and uh, they seem like they should be speaking, but they're not. You just see this kind of stillness. Um, and, you know, this This is, you know, exactly what, you know, it's not, it's not like, oh, look, it's beautiful yellow light for the hell of it right that that's not mm-hmm. the right way to discuss photography it's not the right way to discuss cinematography um there needs to be a reason for it right like what are the kind of grander macro narratives that are being built up like what else is um you know like uh, w- w- what else is happening so like what is the purpose of this kind of light why yeah. you know like like at some point for example um before you you fully understand what is happening or what will happen uh Investigators are, are talking to the um, you know alleged murderers, and uh, the the lead investigator he's like walking in front of his car, and any time that the characters move a little too much, um, this creates like this thin like ribbon of like vertical light just like slicing mm-hmm. through the middle of the screen, and this adds very nicely to the kind of tension that you're feeling like watching. Uh, all the characters interact because you know there is like this kind of you know there's like a murder there's like some sort of drama involved and it's kind of capturing that right it, it reminded me of um uh in in uh killing of a chinese bookie uh where uh, uh cosmo vitelli is you know he's he's like seeing a uh he's he's asking a girl to come like uh, a dance for him a try out for one of the uh dancers in his uh um kind of like se- semi uh, nude club um, and his girlfriend comes and visits and she gets upset. And as she's kind of like walking in, 
you know, when she moves a little bit to the side, the brightness of the light like hits the viewer, right? And kind of interrupts kind of like, and that kind of emphasizes the anger. Here, mm-hmm. it's it's less of an anger. It's more kind of emphatic of uh, uh, the tension that, that's happening. Um, and it, it's just full of like details like that, right? Um, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I have actually too much uh, to say uh, uh, else about this other than like, you know, it's just this like, like the, the, the here, uh, the, like with the stills here, here at least should suggest is, um, you know, so some of the kind of like duplicity that I'm talking about, right. This, this movie has, uh, a lot of that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, and and, and and this is exa- this is where that monologue is taking place, right? Like, imagine just the the wind here. You see the constant movement of this grass. It's unnaturally, unnaturally has been yellowed, um, and and uh, this 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 story, right? This like uh, uh, the story of like multiplicity and also you know uh, uh, kind of like duplicity um, is is being is like unfolding like under this kind of context, right? Uh, how, how does how does that add to it, right? These are the questions that you ought to be asking, not, oh my God, it's so beautiful to look at. I could just die, right? That's um, it's a pretty childish way of of, of looking at technicals, because um, technicals are supposed to add add up to you know everything that we sh- we just discussed, right? It's not just you know about the thing itself, right? It's also uh, what is elided. It's also what's implied. Um, Anyway, uh, I, that, that's yeah. about that's about as much as I have to say on uh, uh, Chaylon. I guess we could look maybe on some of the uh, um, on, on uh, some of the uh, photographs as well, or maybe we could just like end it here. Um, we've been going yeah. for a while. It's been we've been sitting for five and a half hours. Although I think this is going to come out to around four. <clears throat> yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm content to end it there. I think. Uh, certainly the site you were just on where you were pulling the cinema stills, which it, it's very nice that his site has that actually, yeah. uh, you know, a collection of, of still shots curated from the films to go along with, with his general photography. And then his wife as well, Ebru Chelan, uh, as we mentioned, check out her personal site for her own photography too, because she has uh, some, some nice shots in there and certainly talented herself. I know they do a lot of work on those films together. So yeah, cl- um, climate climates was you know it was like the Mia Farrow Woody Allen thing right they were in a yeah. relationship and they both star n- not ne- not you know as themselves but you know they are uh, you know he, he's he's uh, playing the male lead and she's playing the female lead right yeah, yeah. acting it together so um, certainly to anybody who hasn't seen any of of his films do it and uh, you you won't regret it they're great films um all all nice versatility too you know they each have their own their own personality and and kind of different things going on so um yeah the still photography is there to see as well and i think um it's nice to to maybe round out the show there i i don't think i have a, a whole lot more to say in the moment and i'm getting a bit hoarse so <laughs> yeah um sh- should be should be eating feel pretty hungry now um yeah. but uh, so next uh so well in, in a couple of weeks i'm gonna have uh with uh, keith jackwicks i'm gonna do galapagos by um uh by kurt vonnegut right so we it's gonna be the third kurt vonnegut book 
Uh, I feel like we're sort of dancing around like his best book, right? Uh, we we keep like ignoring Slaughterhouse Five, but then again, you know, um, pe- people do tend to ignore some of the other ones. Like Galactus is one that that has not been uh, uh, fully uh, appreciated, so that should be a good mm-hmm. one. Um, now, anyway, I, I'm sure this is useful, right? Uh, this is probably especially useful to you know, budding artists, even if you're not necessarily a photographer, I feel like going through, you know, the thought process um, is is pretty illuminating to, because like this is supposed to have uh, kind of effects elsewhere, right? You're supposed to be able to get and extract information here from photography like it it applies to poetry right in terms of what's let in what's not let in like a lot of this is just you know art is just so discretionary in that way right no matter what you're doing right there's a selection process um so anyway this this should be uh useful to, to anybody that has an interest in the arts Um, As always, thank you guys for watching Artifact number 20. If you've been listening to the audio podcast, I feel very bad for you because you didn't see shit. (laughs) You didn't see shit. So you know what? After you watch the audio podcast and you juice those numbers, you have to go to YouTube. You have to watch that. (laughs) Juice those numbers for me. Hit like, hit subscribe if you haven't done so. Um, And we'll be back with something else for you quite soon. Thanks, everyone. Oh, my God.